Hallelujah. 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 Praise God. Praise God. We honor you today, Jesus. We praise you. We glorify you. are worthy, Father. You are worthy, Father. You are worthy, Father. We praise and honor you. You are worthy. In the name of Jesus. 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 In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come on, come on, let's go farther. The Holy Ghost is in this place in manifestation today. The manifestation of the Holy Ghost is here today. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. The angels of the Lord are in the house. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Mamma 
in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You may be seated. God bless you. First of all, I'd like to uh, sincerely thank those who have been doing the interpreting. I deeply appreciate it. Your ministry is so very important uh, to be able to communicate the word. Sometimes uh, some of the interpreters I've worked with uh, have expressed they feel like that they're they're missing something because they're not able to just sit and listen. I, I really feel to tell you today, those of you that are doing this labor for the kingdom of interpreting, actually you are greatly benefited even more than the listener because you're not only hearing it, but you're having to let the Spirit of the Lord repeat what you're hearing. And you may not think this is going into your spirit, but it's going to a depth in your spirit that only time will demonstrate and prove is the case. So, again, thank you very much. God bless you uh, for your labor. I told Brother Charles, who picked us up this morning from the... Uh, Hotel, I said, uh, well, I said to him, uh, so did everybody survive last night? He said, oh, yeah, they survived well. I, and I said, and I'm complimenting you, there are places in America that I could have done that, and there would have been major problems. Hallelujah. Uh, oh, by the way, this is being streamed to America. <laughs> Hallelujah. So I just uh, did my best to make sure uh, between the Lord and I, I kept waiting for him to rebuke me if I missed it. Because the goal is not only to let him say what he wants to say, but let him say it like he wants to say it. You can say what God gives you to say, but you can say it your way, not his way. And you, I'm not ministering the word of God unless I am not both saying what he wants to say with his attitude and spirit. And uh, I've had people say to me, well, that's not very Christ-like. You're right. I mean, Christ would never act like that, would he? I mean, that wasn't Christ who turned over tables and, and scattered animals and, and coins and braided a, braided a whip out of rope and swung it at human beings. That wasn't Christ, was it? 
And the disciples were so shocked by it, they tried to understand what his motive was. And the only conclusion they could draw was, it is written, the zeal of thine house has eaten me up. And uh, I have a track record of being more than willing to publicly admit I'm wrong when I'm wrong. And I have apologized over the years uh, whenever the Lord and those that love me correct me and make that uh, clear. Uh, That what came over me last night was not me and it's not the way I like to treat people Uh, but I'm not afraid to let the Lord speak his mind Uh, it's like the devil threatening to kill you what are you going to threaten me with heaven it's like preachers it's like preachers saying well we're not going to have you back you're not going to threaten me with getting to stay home Really, please, thank you, please, if nobody invites me and allows me to come, then the Lord can't get on my case, right? (laughs) I get to stay home. Oh, praise God. So don't threaten me with heaven and don't threaten me with getting to stay home. Praise God. Okay. Oh, I have and apparently I will, so... (laughs) Uh, Another thing that I think it's really important, Brother Charles also asked you this, this, me this morning, have you done call to war very many places? And I said, well, first of all, uh, yes, I teach spiritual warfare a lot of places. But this is only the second place I have done a call to war. There's a reason for that. You can't just go anywhere and do this. You can't do it. This is a unique place, Singapore. The reason it's unique in Asia is it only has a little over 200-year history. It doesn't have centuries and thousands of years of tradition and religious spirits that are deeply entrenched. And so therefore, the apostolic authority that established this work and that spirit of apostolic authority that remains here, coupled with the fact that there isn't this long history of religious tradition and governmental oppression creates an atmosphere of liberty here that allows us to do call to war on a level that you can't just go anywhere and do it. You can't. I have some good friends that are pressing me to come do a call to war. And I haven't said that to them yet. I haven't. But at this point, unless the Lord tells me differently, I'm not going to their place to do call to war. If if I get a release to come and just teach some spiritual warfare, so be it. But this is a completely different dimension. And you can't just do this everywhere right now. Now, in Jesus' name, there will be a day.
in the earth where there will be many, many, many places that you could have this kind of liberty and demonstration of the Spirit to be able to flow. But there's, there's too many places where there isn't any true apostolic authority at all. I am a district superintendent of the Maryland, D.C. District of the United Pentecostal Church International. I am on the general board. So the statements I'm, I'm about to make are not anti-UPCI. But I sat a couple of years ago and listened to the general superintendent say to the general board, you brethren have administrative authority. But that doesn't mean you automatically mean you have spiritual authority. And if you don't have both spiritual authority and administrative authority, then you need to identify the men in your district that have spiritual authority and make room for them to exercise that. Now, I'm 70 years old. I was 68 when I heard that. And I got to tell you something. I never had faith that a general superintendent would ever say that to the general board. Because we have lived in denial of that. If you do not have authority in your life, you don't need to take on the devil. And you don't have authority in your life unless there's somebody that you answer to that can tell you no. Well, I answer to God. Sorry, that's not God's plan. See, God's principle is this. How can you love God that you haven't seen if you can't love your brother whom you have seen? That's the principle. So let's apply the principle. If you can't be submitted to the brother God's put over you, how can you be submitted to the God you can't see? Who do you answer to, brother Wright? Well, our church has a a, a board of apostolic men who are not a part of our church who have the oversight and the authority over our church and I have my authority by submission to them and their delegation of that authority to me what you what do you mean submitted I mean they tell me no occasionally They, I mean, they tell me, no, no, that's not the way we're going to do it. And there are men uh, who, by their own choice, have submitted to my ministry. And there are times that the Lord speaks to me and I call them and say, I need you here. I need you there. Or you need to do this. Often? Nah, not often. Just enough for them to have the opportunity to express over again that they're truly submitted. Because the only way to confirm your submission is to be put in a position where you're told no. And if you're not willing for somebody else to tell you no, for somebody to have the authority to tell you no, then you're not a submitted person and you don't have authority. But I've got power. Yes, the devil's got power. There's no difference between the devil 
and a child of God that has power but is not submitted to authority. Because the devil has power but is not submitted to authority. And a child of God who has the power of God but is not submitted to authority is no different in principle. I'm not saying you're of the devil. I'm just saying in principle you're no different. Because if I'm exercising a power without being under authority, I am then usurping authority. And hear me. This is not the lesson today. This is just an introduction. It's not even on the subject. Okay? But uh, you do not want to become a person. Involved in confronting principalities and powers, rulers of darkness and wicked spirits in the heavenlies. Unless you are covered by apostolic authority, you will get hurt. You'll get hurt. You're not going to like the stuff that happens. Jesus said, Luke 10, 19... Uh, behold, the King James says, behold, I give you power. The Greek word is exousia, which is authority. Behold, I give you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. So if you're warring under authority, you are covered and protected by that authority. And the Lord's promised that protection is going to enable that you not be hurt. But if you're not covered by authority, then there is no promise of protection. There's no promise of protection. And you dear ones that are here without your pastor being here, and he's not hearing what you're hearing. And maybe he doesn't yet believe what you're hearing. You need to tread very, very carefully that you not get impatient with him and move out from underneath his protection and covering as you pray. So how do you prevent that? You prevent that by communication with him. Tell him what you're feeling. Tell him what you want to do. And don't do anything he's not ready to give you permission for. Well, Brother Wright, what if he doesn't give me permission? Then you pray and talk to God until he does give you permission. And leave that in God's hands. Why? I don't want you hurt. I don't want your family damaged. I don't want to see that. The Lord doesn't want to see that. I've got a good friend who pastors in the middle part of the United States. When I did the very first call to war, he's a friend of mine. He believes this, but he, he wasn't able to come to the meeting. And he had talked to some of his people about it. And, and, but he was, he's a very deliberate guy and he's not, he, he doesn't get in a hurry. And, uh, so a lady in their church who was their bookkeeper, she was a lawyer by, profession and a bookkeeper and his wife's very best friend 
Well, she listened to all of the call to war, watched all the call to war, that first one. And she got impatient with her pastor because he wasn't moving quickly enough. And with him cautioning her not to, and her listening to sessions where I repeatedly said, do not engage in call to war without being under the covering of apostolic authority. Do not be engaged in spiritual warfare without being under the covering of apostolic authority. She got impatient with him and plunged on ahead before he was ready for him and her and the church to do that. And she lost her mind. Literally. She ended up in the hospital, mental hospital, because she had too many wounds inside that had never been healed and all of those wounds were open doors for spirits and 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 her protection would have been the covering of authority but because she launched out on her own without the covering and permission of her pastor all she didn't have a covering and all of those wounds inside that she'd never let God heal became open doors for demonic spirits to come against her And the last I've heard, she still hasn't fully recovered from that. And I actually went to that church to talk to her and minister to her. But it was, it was really difficult time. It was difficult. Frankly, I don't know if I made any progress with her. So I'm begging you today, please understand the seriousness of this. We are not playing games. This is not spiritism. It's not mysticism. We're not into sensationalism. This is the miraculous. It is not the sensational. It is supernatural. It is not mystical. But we are involved in the spirit world. Because as I said... Tuesday night, God is a spirit, and you can't be involved with God without being involved in the supernatural. God is supernatural. So if you're going to have any kind of faith in a relationship with God, you're automatically involved with the supernatural. Praise God. Okay, that's enough of that. I got the hard stuff out of the way. Now let's go to some stuff that you'll be a little bit more willing to listen to. <laughs> um, as I said yesterday, I'm not in charge. I just work here. <laughs> the Lord's in charge. So whatever he wants is what we do. So consequently, to those of you that are a member of, of Tabernacle of Joy and Joy Fellowship that were in a session that I did in this room in 2013 on the three patterns of prayer, guess what? You get to hear it again. Except it's never the same twice, so I'm sure you'll be benefited by that. But that's the direction the Lord wants me to go today. So I'm just forewarning you. I would apologize if I was allowed to, but then I would be saying that the Lord doesn't know what he's doing if I apologize. So I'm not apologizing. I'm just letting you know in advance that I'm aware. I'm letting you know in advance that I'm aware I talked about these three patterns of prayer here three years ago. Praise God. Okay. 
I don't know about you, but I still am basking in the afterglow of the infinite God. Anytime I have a, I'm given the opportunity by the Lord to talk about him and how infinite, infinite he is. There's just a, there's just a glow that just stays and abides with that because he is so awesome. He's so far beyond the, the finiteness of my mind. It's just awesome to do that. So, uh, I, I want to talk to you about prayer and, uh, in the, in the context of the finite or the infinite God, here's a very brief definition of what true prayer is. Prayer is the privilege granted to the finite to communicate and participate with the infinite God. Prayer is the privilege granted to the finite. That's us. To communicate with and participate with the infinite God. Prayer is the bridge that spans the gap between the infinite and the finite. Prayer, let's, do, let's do modern terminology. Prayer is the interface between the infinite and the finite. <laughs> Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Prayer. Prayer. The Logos made flesh, which is Christ, is the head of the body. Could God create the head without also creating the body? No. So if this metaphor is biblical, what's the purpose of prayer? In the, in the parable of nature, a body and its head do not function unless the body can communicate with the head and vice versa. This is prayer. Prayer is the head communicating with the body and the body communicating with the head. In a biblical, in a body sense or a physiological sense, prayer is the nervous system by which messages are sent from the mind to the rest of the body and then the body sends feedback from all of its organs and members back through the nervous system to the head. That's prayer. A body that is paralyzed has some kind of interruption in the flow of communication between the mind and some part of the body. Because the body, the mind expects to be able to give orders to the body to function. How many of you got up this morning and said, I, I need to make sure my heart beats today? How many of you have woke up and said, you know, uh, now self, listen to me. You need to breathe today. No, why? Because my heart beating, my lungs breathing, is all controlled by my brain from a different level than my consciousness. But that communication is going on even though I'm not consciously aware of it. Are you ready? 
<laughs> when you learn to be a part or, or you submit to being a part of this communication between God and the head and the body, there will be communication going on at levels that you're not consciously aware of. That's why the Bible says pray without ceasing. How is that possible? He didn't mean I'm supposed to find an altar, kneel down 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. How is it possible to pray without ceasing? Because I can pray in a conscious level and I can pray at a subconscious level because I have a connection between the head and the body that is not severed and the communication lines are always open and flowing. Unless I am fellowshipping with things that he will not participate with, will not take ownership of. So I can come to church, praise and pray, and then leave church and go fellowship with things. What fellowship hath light with darkness? And when I participate with things habitually, okay, understand what I just said? If I participate with things habitually, Now, when he saved me, he did not remove my sinful nature from my flesh. He forgave me of my sins. But as long as I live, my sinful nature, the sinful nature still abides in my flesh. That's why my body is not going to be saved in its current condition. When I'm saved, when salvation takes place, my flesh is going to be turned into a glorified body. Meaning a body void of the sinful nature. I got a revelation for you. Your body's not your friend. Your flesh knows it's not going to heaven. In its current condition. Our bodies are made of two of the most common elements there is. The scripture says God formed man out of the dust of the earth. And the word dust is literally the loose impediments on top of the soil. But it wasn't just dirt. It was dust that when gathered up and waters mixed with it, we call it clay. But like three quarters of our bodies is some kind of liquid or essentially water. What does water do? Water always seeks its lowest level. And the rest of me that's not water is dirt. So this body is in its current form is of the earth. And if you listen to your body and give in to the desires of your flesh, you're not walking in the Spirit. Galatians 5, please. Verse 16. Galatians 5, 16. 
If you walk in the flesh, this I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Notice what the verse does not say. It does not say walk in the spirit and you won't have any lust of the flesh. You can't ever get spiritual enough in this life that your sinful nature is gone. Romans 8.13, please. Romans 8.13. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit, if ye through the Spirit do mortify the... The what? Not the desires. The deeds. You can't eliminate the desires of the body. But through the Spirit, you can mortify or kill the influence of the desires of the body so that you don't do the deeds of the flesh. So back to Galatians 5 and now verse 17. Walk in the Spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit. And the Spirit against the flesh and these are contrary the one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would the word cannot there the word can is the verb form of the greek word dunamis that is translated power it's the verb form so what that means is If I allow myself to be stuck between spirit and flesh and I don't make a decision who's going to win in the struggle on the inside of me, then I do not receive the supernatural empowerment to be able to do the things that are pleasing to God. In other words, the first war you've got to win in spiritual warfare is the one going on inside of you. If you don't win this war, you can't win the one in the spirit world. Because if you come against the adversary and you haven't won this internal war between flesh and spirit, he knows that. He knows it. And since he knows it, he will use that vulnerability that we leave there because he knows that in our wills, we have not decided to choose God and the things of God over the flesh and the things of the flesh. And that fact that we have not chosen it leaves us vulnerable. Plus... We can't even live a life that's pleasing to God. Why? Because if you leave yourself in the midst of this battle without deciding who's going to win, you cannot. In other words, you do not have, you will not receive the supernatural empowerment to do those things that you will. Hallelujah. What's the flip side of that? Philippians 2.13. I know the word grace is not in this verse, but it is the most literal definition of the word grace anywhere in the Bible. For it is God that worketh, which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. 
The word work there in the Greek means to activate, to cause to be operative. So it is God that works in us, that activates in us, both to will, philema, which is which, the Greek word is philema, wish, want, or desire. So if you desire to live for God, the grace of God is activating that in you. No man can come to the Father except the Spirit draw him. How does the Spirit draw him? The Spirit activates in us a desire. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. The blessing is not being filled. The blessing is the fact that you're hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Because that is a work of the Spirit of God in our lives. So daily, I pray this to all of those backsliders and lost souls under the covering of this authority. I loose the spirit of hunger and thirst after Jesus, after the kingdom, after righteousness upon them. I bless them with hunger and thirst for righteousness. I pray that every day. Why? Because they can't come to God on their own. No man can come unto the Father except the Spirit draws him. Another thing I pray regularly is I loose the the Spirit of the love of God to go forth. And here's a Bible verse. And draw the lost and the backslider with the bands of love. See, the problem isn't there not being enough to pray. The problem is, you can't pray at all in one day. So I don't worry about that. I let the Spirit of God sift through that on a day-to-day basis. And what I pray today, I pray today. And what He leads me to pray tomorrow, I pray tomorrow. So this is, this is what's so critical about all this. This is a supernatural work. Now, what I love about this work verse is, it is God which works in you, activates, causes to operate in you, both to desire and to do of his good pleasure. Guess what Greek word is translated to do? The same exact Greek word that's translated can and cannot in Galatians 5, 17. It is God that activates in you to desire, to want, to hunger, to thirst. And it is God that activates in you the supernatural ability to do what you cannot do on your own, which is to do those things that please Him. So this is the word for power in action. It's the verb. It's power in action. It is power, it is an impartation of the ability to do what I cannot do myself. And how do I have that? I walk in the Spirit. You walk in the Spirit. You live in the Spirit. Okay, okay, okay. Galatians 5. And uh, let's try uh, 24, we'll read from there. <laughs> and they that are Christ have crucified the, 
the flesh with the affections and lusts. Next verse. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So if you don't find yourself walking faithfully daily in the Spirit, the reason is you're not living in the Spirit. What does that mean? I'm married. My wife is here. But I would be just as married if she was at home. So, well, I'm at work. How can I walk in the Spirit? Because the Spirit of God abides in me. And He is in charge of my life. He is the ruler of my life. And since He is the ruler of my life, He is always the ruler whether I'm at work or sleeping or eating or praying. I'm no more... Oh boy. (laughs) I am no more in the spirit sleeping or, or, or praying than I am sleeping if I live in the spirit. I may be participating with the Spirit on a different level, but I'm no more living in the Spirit when I'm praying than when I'm sleeping because I live in the Spirit. Oh, Jesus. Now you understand this is scheduled for four hours and I'm not in a hurry. In fact, you know what my concern is? I can't cover everything in four hours on this subject. It can't be done. Because actually I haven't started the subject yet. <laughs> this is still introduction. <laughs> I have a habit of giving long answers to short questions and doing long introductions. <laughs> I just can't help it. It just flows and I enjoy the flow. So we'll do that. So I, I want to participate in this communication between the head and the body. Because no one in the world has this level of opportunity for participation than those who have been called by his name. And are not, not just expressing some kind of faith in God. But who have actually been born into his presence. Born into his kingdom. Born into his body. As I said yesterday, when I am spirit baptized, the spirit of Christ comes into me. When I am water baptized, I am placed into Christ. Into the body of Christ. And I have to have both of those to happen. Praise God. (laughs) So, uh, for the church... Prayer is, first of all, communication between the head and the body. Second of all, prayer is communication between the Father and His sons. But also, prayer is communication between the bride and the groom. I said it the other night, I'll say it again. Individually, we are, male or female, sons of God. Collectively, male or female, we're the bride of Christ. And I've used this illustration many times, and here it goes again. (laughs) Wives have influence with their husbands that 
sons don't have with the father. When my boys were living at home, they might come to me and say, hey, dad, let's go to the mall. And I'd say, oh, boys, I'm tired. It's been a long day. I just want to sit here and rest. Five minutes later, their mother could come in the room and say, let's go to the mall. And my response is, boys, get your stuff together. We're going to the mall. (laughs) Because the desire of the wife is greater in, in impact than the desire of the sons. You don't, you're, you, fathers and sons are not supposed to be intimate, but husbands and wives are. Not only that, I made a vow to be a part of a husband-wife relationship. I never made a vow to be a part of a father-son relationship. Why? Because that father-son relationship changes constantly. The difference between being a little boy and being a child, being an adolescent, being a teenager, being a young adult, being married. When my boys were home, I held no opinion back. I was the dad, you're in my house, I got something to say, and you're going to listen. My house, my rules. You live under my house, the roof of my house, you're eating my food that's provided for you, you're wearing clothes I bought for you, you're driving a vehicle that I'm letting you use, my house, my rules. Now both of my sons have wives and children and houses. I don't volunteer opinions as a dad anymore. Even when I see them making a decision that is not for the best. They're grown men with families. They have a right to be wrong. They have a right to make decisions. I don't mean that facetiously. They do. They have a right to take the resp- to make a decision and take responsibility for that. When they were living under my roof, it was my responsibility for the decisions they made. Not that I could make them make right decisions, but I had a whole different level of authority and influence there. So you've got to understand the difference in prayer. We pray here. Oh, wow. The things that God can do through us here as the bride praying to the husband is amazing. When you pray by yourself someplace as a son talking to the father, that's different. I don't know how it is your culture, but I'm going to tell you about the Bible. In the Bible, husbands don't correct wives. They lead wives. You correct children, you lead wives. <laughs> oh, Lord, have mercy. Did I just bump up against some spirit of culture here? Okay, you can, you can live by your culture instead of the Bible if you want. That's your problem. I think I'll say that again. You can live by your culture if you want. But you've got to choose who's the final and what's the final authority in your life. Is culture the final authority in your life or the word of God the final authority in your life? Because you see, here's the deal. When you were born again, you were no longer Indonesian or Filipino or Chinese or Singaporean. 
Your culture is gone. You are born into Christ. The culture of the church is His culture. And His culture is fully explained in the Word of God. And the fact that you're practicing your culture is no excuse at the judgment seat. That was a little strong, wasn't it? No, it wasn't. That's about as gentle as I could be on that subject. Because there is no positive tradition in the Scripture. You know what Jesus says tradition does? It makes your worship useless. And it makes the Word of God of no effect in your life. Tell me tradition. Religious tradition, cultural tradition, national tradition. Tell me that tradition is harmless if it makes my worship vain and it makes the word of God of no effect in my life. So we must choose whether we're going to follow culture or tradition or the word of God. So I'll say it to you again. Biblically, you lead a wife. You correct the child. So what happens? When God is correcting us, it's almost always individually between us and Him. The Spirit of the Lord leads His bride through the oversight ministry that preaches and 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 finds the flow of the Holy Ghost and is used of the Lord. I used to use the terminology pulpit ministry till I found that you can't, there is no such thing in the Bible as a pulpit ministry. And the last thing I want to define ministry as is pulpit ministry since that's not scriptural. So I now use the terminology oversight ministry. Because saints have a ministry. The whole church has a ministry. Everybody born again of water and the spirit has a ministry. But God has gifted, gifted certain individuals to oversee that ministry. And they are the oversight ministry. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Okay? Praise God. I almost got tempted to go off on that, but it, it's, it's not. It's not time. I don't have time for that today. So the Holy Ghost doesn't have time for it. I, it's a better way of putting it. Okay. Prayer is not us trying to convince God to do things that he is reluctant or even opposed to do. Everything was his idea first. Do you know what I said? Oh, Lord. Don't you care the lost are going to hell? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Oh Lord, don't you care the lost are going to hell? You know what his response to that is? Yeah, I do. Do you? Because if you did, you'd do it my way and we'd see people get saved. And you're accusing me of being the one failing by your question. 
Because you're not doing it my way. You're doing it your way and it's not working. And so therefore, you're questioning whether I care. But you don't care enough to do it my way. Oh, Jesus, help us. <laughs> Prayer is the most critical and important element of the plan and purpose of God during this era of pre-eternal life, which ends at the judgment throne. Prayer is the most critical and important element of the plan and purpose of God during this era of pre-eternal life. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. I don't believe that. I believe preaching is the most important. That's why we're not seeing growth like he's promised. Please tell me that what I say, what is said to people is more important than what's said between me and God and the church and God in prayer. Really? Really? So the most important thing in God is what he uses human vessels to say to other humans rather than the most important thing being the communication between the head and the body. Prayer. There's our problem right there. We're out of divine order. That's not biblical. Why? Because preaching is a gifting. The preacher's not better than the saint. He's just gifted differently. Same thing in my family. I'm the head of my, ham, my, my family. That doesn't make me better than her or smarter than her. And some men never learn that. She has her role in place. I have mine. But that doesn't make me better than her. It's just my role and responsibility to answer for the family. I learned the hard way. It's wise to at least let her hear what she's got to say. I may not make a decision based on that, but it's wise to at least hear the input. What do you think the father does? He wants the wife on board. I am not the master and her the slave. I'm the president of the company and she's the senior executive vice president. She does not work for me. She works with me. That's why we are called heirs with Christ and fellow laborers in the kingdom. That's why we are ambassadors according to 2 Corinthians 5. And pray you in Christ's place or Christ's stead be ye reconciled to God. Oh, praise God. <laughs> okay, we have gotten here. It only took an hour to get to this point. <laughs> there are three distinct biblical patterns of prayer. They are progressive in nature. They are different. So either, either their difference proves they're in contradiction... Or their difference demonstrates that they are progressive in nature. And they are progressive. 
The first pattern of prayer is built around the tabernacle pattern. The second pattern of prayer was revealed by God to Solomon at the temple's dedication. And the third pattern of prayer was revealed by Jesus Christ to the temple of God, the body of Christ. Tabernacle, earthly temple, temple of the Holy Ghost, the body of Christ. These are not the same. They are not synonymous. They are progressive. And any child of God that wants to grow in Christ and be a part of the ministry of the kingdom will learn how to pray each of these patterns and move and mature in that pattern so you can move to the next pattern of prayer. These three patterns reflect three purposes of prayer. The first pattern of prayer is about relationship. The second pattern of prayer is about ministry. The third pattern of prayer is about dominion. In the first pattern of prayer, I fellowship with God. In the second pattern of prayer, I become fruitful in God. And in the third pattern of prayer, I demonstrate the faith of God and exercise the faith of God. Prayer's fellowship, the first pattern, is talking to God. The second pattern, prayer's ministry, is allowing God to speak through us. The third pattern of prayer is praying as a conduit so that the authority of God can be exercised in the earth through us. The first pattern of prayer is the sons of God. The third, second pattern of prayer is the prayer of the wife. The third pattern of prayer is the prayer of spiritual dominion or government in the earth. It's not done yet, okay? (laughs) In the first pattern of prayer, I connect to God. In the second pattern of prayer, I communicate with God. In the third pattern of prayer, I become a conduit for God. In the first first pattern of prayer, I deal with my flesh. In the second pattern of prayer, I deal with my soul. And in the third pattern of prayer, I deal with my spirit. The first pattern of prayer is about simple faith in God. The second pattern of prayer is about our hope in God. The third pattern of prayer is about our love for God. The first pattern of prayer, the the prayer of your mind or the language of your mind. Now, the Holy Ghost, the ministering in tongues, praying in tongues, speaking in tongues, can be involved in all three of these patterns of prayer. But the Holy Ghost, when we pray in our language, for me it would be English. In the first pattern of prayer, I primarily would pray prayer and praise and repentance in English. In the second pattern of prayer, I would be primarily praying casting my cares in English. And in the third pattern of prayer, I would primarily be speaking rhema that is given to me to speak. And I would be binding and loosing 
in those three things. I know I went through that very quickly, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a PDF copy of these notes available through Brother Lee that you can get. They will be in English. Hopefully somebody can translate them for you. Okay? So I'm happy to do that for you. You're welcome to them. I have one stipulation. You can give them away. You have no authority to sell them to anybody. Period. Okay. So, let's talk about the first pattern of prayer. Exodus 25, verse 8. The Lord has given instructions to Moses for the tabernacle. He said, and let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. See what the purpose of the tabernacle was. Fellowship. I want to dwell among you. For since the Garden of Eden, God did not have means up to this point to fellowship personally with man. Man had, before man had sinned, God was able to fellowship with man. But after man sinned, God cannot fellowship with sin. He communicated with man he did not fellowship with man. He spent time with Adam and Eve every day in the garden. But from that point to this day, God did not fellowship with man. He communicated. He did not fellowship. Why? Because there had to be a buffer between God and the sins of man so that the purity, the holiness of God did not consume man in his sin. And so therefore, the tabernacle was built and deep within that tabernacle plan was a place that was called the holiest of all and there was an ark built that was, was the device through which God could manifest his Shekinah glory. And the external evidence that God was in manifestation was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. That was not the primary manifestation of God's fellowship with Israel through the tabernacle. That took place in the holiest of all between the arced wings of the cherubim and the mercy seat on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. He built that for a sanctuary so that he could be again among his people. That's why Christ Jesus was named, one of his names was Emmanuel, which being interpreted as God with us. You see, in that situation, human flesh, but sinless human flesh, was the insulator between the purity and the holiness of God and sinful man. But God was able to fellowship with man through that sinless flesh.
And so Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1, this is what the Lord said about the tabernacle in the New Testament. Just so you will know it applies to us. Now the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest and high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith the Lord, or he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. But now hath he ordained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is a mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. So the point here is that the the tabernacle pattern is the initial pattern of prayer for our relationship with God. Now, in looking at this again this morning, I hadn't even noticed it before. I don't I just you read stuff and it just doesn't click. When the Lord gave instruction to Moses, And described what should be built. He didn't start with the wall around the court of the tabernacle. He did not build the tabernacle from the outside in. The first thing that was built was the Ark of the Covenant. So he built from the inside out. Why is that important? Because 1 Thessalonians 5.23 please tells us that man is three parts, body, soul, and spirit. And the very God of peace sanctify you holy, not H-O-L-Y, but holy completely in your entirety. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. First Corinthians chapter 6 says, He that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. I do not have the Holy Ghost per se in that little finger. I don't have the Holy Ghost in my flesh. I really don't have the Holy Ghost in my soul. The Spirit of God comes into the human spirit and they become one. He that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. (laughs) And that word joined there in the Greek is exactly the same English and Greek word in our language. Just a few verses before that says that the temple of God, your body, should not be joined to a harlot. And we, as adults in this room, have some idea of how a male and female join. 
And that exact same Greek and, and uh, Greek word is used just a few verses later to describe what happens when the Spirit of God comes into us. The Spirit of God comes into our spirit and we are made one in God. So when God begins to bring us into his body, when he begins to work salvation with us, just like in the tabernacle pattern, he begins from the inside out. Now, I've been in Pentecost all my life. And I will tell you this, the Pentecostal pattern is we begin from the outside in. Because if we can get you looking right, we're safe. It doesn't matter if on the inside you're still dead men's bones. Just as long as you look right. Are we supposed to look right? At some point. But God works from the inside out. Let me give you an example I've used many times. Let's just pretend that the Bible says, Thou shalt not use crutches. Crutches, you know what I'm talking about? August the 24th, I tripped and fell and tore a whole bunch of stuff loose, and I was on crutches for about two months. So this is a very real illustration to me now. I needed to find a different illustration so I didn't have to live it. So here we are. We're, we're going to have church. We're Pentecostals and we're going to have church. And, and, and we know the Bible says thou shalt not use crutches. And so, oh, the door opens and here comes an individual coming to church on crutches. And everybody can see the crutches. And everybody looks and goes, "Uh uh-oh, that person's in trouble because they're using crutches. And so now the preacher has a decision to make. Do I have the authority to preach, thou shalt not use crutches? Yes, I do. Or I can preach and minister To that individual so that they get healed and no longer need crutches. I can do one or the other. I can't do both. So if I choose to do what I have a right to do and preach to you that you can't use crutches, well now you got a decision to make. You can't get around without crutches. That's how you're existing. And so if I want to be saved, I got to figure out how to function without my crutches because I'm still needing crutches inside because getting saved doesn't immediately take care of whatever it is you need inside that's causing you to use the crutches, which is the false doctrine that so many believe, hey, The book says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Behold, all things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I believe that verse. There's one slight problem. I don't know anybody I could say that's really gotten there yet. I haven't. I've had the Holy Ghost 58 years. And I can't honestly tell you that 
all old things have passed away and everything's brand new. I got a promise I can get there someday, but I'm not there yet. And it's the idea that a brand new person that doesn't know anything about God could walk in our building and repent, get baptized, receive the Holy Ghost, and suddenly they're not supposed to have any more problems or struggles or pains or hurts or wounds inside is ridiculous. That was my kindest word to use. It's ridiculous. And so we preachers, because that's the culture, that's the way we do it, have been put in a position of trying to get other people to do what they haven't perfected in themselves yet for themselves. Is holiness in the Bible? Yes, it is. But here's what it says. 2 Corinthians 7.1. Notice this carefully, please. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You see this word perfecting? The I-N-G in the English is the infinity, infinitive. And what that is means it's an ongoing process. It's not an event. It's a process. I am not holy as an event. I am holy as a process. It's an ongoing process. And since we don't preach this like this, we foolishly judge people. I am more holy than you. Excuse me, I can't help myself. That's stupid. I can't be kinder than that. It's stupid. Uh, and, and we do it. It's done. Trust me. It's happened in this room. You have people come together from different nations. And if you don't think we've been comparing ourselves among ourselves and seeing how, how we do this, but you don't do that. If you don't, if you don't think that's been going on, that's humanity, and we do it. Since holiness is a process, I don't have the right to judge you where you are in the process. I am a, I, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm the bishop of Antioch, the Apostolic Church, Arnold, Maryland, USA. And as the bishop and pastor, Former pastor and still ministering in the pulpit there. There are occasions God gives me words that I need to speak. And I have a right to preach the elements of holiness. But I have a responsibility to preach them with the right attitude. Because in the Pentecost I was raised in, the way you got people to live holy was you shamed them into it. You shame, and it still goes on. You shame people into it. We have an old cliche in America. It goes like this. If I'm against, if I'm convinced against my will, I'm of the same opinion still. 
You can shame me into doing something, but inside I'm not doing it. It was like the dad that was trying to discipline his son. And he said, sit down. No, little boy. No. I said, sit down. No. If you don't sit down, I'm going to spank you. The boy sits down, but he looks up and dad says, I may be sitting down outside, but I'm still standing up inside. (laughs) And there are a lot of Pentecostals that look holy on the outside, but aren't holy on the inside because they've been shamed into doing something that they weren't mature enough to do. The word holy by itself is a very important word. What does it mean? It means set apart from, set apart unto. It's a two-step process. It's a two-step process. The Holy Ghost, which is holy, the Spirit of God, which is holy, we call the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit, when it comes into me, begins to work from the inside out, working on this separating process, separating me little by little, step by step, moment by moment from, but it's not enough to leave something, to be separated from something. I need to be separated to something. Now, there's not too many of you here that probably have had this experience, and God bless you for it. Now, I know that people are aware that in America, obesity is rampant. <laughs> and I am one. <laughs> and if you've never been fat, I don't know how to say overweight is too kind. <laughs> if you've never been fat and tried to lose weight, then you don't have any right to judge somebody that's Why don't you want to lose weight? Are you kidding? I want to lose weight every day of my life. (laughs) There's never been a day I don't want to lose weight. I want to lose weight. Wanting to lose weight and losing weight are two different things. Because I love sweets. Candy, cake, cookies, pies, ice cream. I've had people tell me, I love meat. I don't love sweets. I I feel sorry for you. Praise God. I really do. If you love meat and you don't love sweets, God bless you. Praise God. Hallelujah. But when you got my personality, you need all the help being sweet you can, you can get. So, so, so <laughs> that sounds good, doesn't it? That, that's a pretty good excuse, isn't it? Woo. You don't seem to be believing that excuse. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> so back to the point. If you've ever tried to lose weight, there's two ways to do it. You know, exercise. Ah. Exercise. <laughs> Wash your mouth out. <laughs> Exercise. (laughs) I'm standing here four hours. Isn't that something? Praise God. Can't lose weight. So if you're trying to lose weight, you can either 
deny yourself food. I, I, I can't eat that, can't eat this, can't eat that, can't eat that. If you've ever tried that, it works about two minutes. You can get busy and not be hungry at all. But you decide you're not going to eat stuff so you can lose weight and you'll be starving to death and have the shakes in about 30 seconds. So the easiest way to lose weight is not think about all you can't eat. It's to focus on what you can eat. And if you can get full of good stuff, well, I don't like that word good because cakes and pies and cookies and candies are good. And, and I don't even like that word healthy. My doctor says I'm very healthy. I'm just a very healthy fat man. So <laughs> there's some of you skinny people that would absolutely be envious if you knew how low my blood pressure was. So I'm healthy. So if I'm healthy, what I'm eating is eating healthy. So Cake and pies can make you healthy, right? Right? No. You eat things that fill you up. They quench your hunger. Now, some of you know this already, but my favorite place to eat in all the world, which I'm not going to get to eat at here in Singapore this trip, is... Burger King. I'm not joking. Honestly, that's truth. I know that's pitiful, but it's true. And my favorite food in the whole world is a Whopper, and that's honestly the truth. But my wife, I love her so much that for her, when we're traveling like this, I don't care where it is. Just give me something to put in my mouth, get full, however quick that is. If I don't have to sit down and order and wait on somebody to serve me, that's better because I got stuff to do. For her, she's not eating unless you put a menu in front of her. And she carefully peruses all the choices. Most of the time, I know what she's going to get anyway. Why? You already know that. (laughs) We went to eat someplace the other day. I'd already checked the menu online. I knew what I was going to get. I wasn't going to waste my time when I got there. I already knew. Okay. So, anyway. Um, <laughs> I, it tastes good, and it's quick, and it's not in the mouth very long, and it fills my stomach up quickly, so now I can go and do stuff, right? I mean, basically, that's ultimately the choice anyway. It's just... I just don't want to be hungry so I can have the strength to go on, right? So there is stuff. When I'm doing well eating-wise, I eat lots of fruit. Love fruit and vegetables. I'm not, a, I'm not against eating meat. I just, it's not my favorite thing to eat. So uh, fruits and vegetables, I love all that. And the good thing about that is you, it makes you full. If you're full... You're not tempted. Now, my favorite dessert in the whole wide world is at Chili's. It's their molten chocolate cake. But here's the key. If I go to Chili's 
and eat till I'm full. I'm not tempted to order one. I've eaten at Chili's twice already on this trip. Haven't ordered a molten chocolate cake yet. Because I'm full. If you are full of God, because you're not just separated from, but you're separated unto, and you're full of Him, then you don't miss all of this. And you don't pine away for all that you've lost. And you don't feel like you're being deprived by God because you can't have that. Because He's good and He's filling and He's satisfying if you give yourself to Him. And so being separated is not a chore. It's not unpleasant. It's not unfair because you're full of Him. But when people are shamed into being separated and they give all of this up, they're not full of God. So they always pine for this and eventually they get bitter with the preacher and the church because of all they were deprived of because they never got to where they were going. So the guy with the crutches comes in. I could say, okay, in my mind, I know he shouldn't be using crutches, but... He obviously, trust me, after having spent two months on crutches, nobody uses crutches because they want to. If you use crutches, you do it because you need to. So as a man of God, I can make the choice to ignore the crutches for now and deal with whatever his problems are that's causing the need for the crutches. And if he can receive ministry and become whole, he'll walk into service one day with no crutches. And he will say, look, no crutches, and we can rejoice with him. But if we pre- preach against crutches, he'll come in in a wheelchair or somebody will have to carry him in or he'll come dragging or crawling in and he's not going to say, look, no crutches. He's going to say, look how humiliated I am that I've had to try to function without that which has enabled me to function up to this point. And every single holiness standard is dealing with an issue inside that needs fixed. Every one of them. And I'm not going to get into that, but every one of them is dealing with whatever. Now, I believe you have to have the baptism of the Holy Ghost to be saved. But if somebody asks me, do you have to speak in tongues to be saved. The only answer I can give them is no. Wait a minute. Don't listen. Because speaking in tongues is the evidence of the Holy Ghost. And I can't make the evidence a part of the necessity. The necessity is the Holy Ghost. Because if I preach you have to be speaking tongues to be saved, then people forget about the Holy Ghost and focus on the tongues. 
You have to have the Holy Ghost to be saved. The next question is, because the Holy Ghost is the Spirit, how do I know I receive the Holy Ghost? Well, the initial external evidence to receive the Holy Ghost is speaking with other tongues. Well, then you have to speak in tongues to be saved. No! You have to have the Holy Ghost to be saved. Holiness standards are not the plan of salvation. They are outward indicators, just like tongues, that the work of God has been done in your life. And so if somebody is not living according to the, to the teachings of holiness, the problem isn't what they're doing outwardly or the lack of it outwardly that's the problem. It's what's on the inside they have not dealt with or allowed God to deal with is the problem. And if I focus only on the outward rather than letting the Lord speak to me on the inward and help people on the inward, there is a problem here. Again, the tabernacle is about fellowship. The tabernacle is about communicating with God. And when the Lord built the tabernacle, he started from the inside out. So, let's look at the tabernacle pattern. If we walked up to the tabernacle, the first thing we would see are the walls. They were about, if I remember correctly, somebody help me out here, I think they were like 8 or 10 feet tall. They were tall enough that no man could see over them. They were also badger skins dyed red. In other words, you wouldn't have gone by the tabernacle because it looked pretty. It was not built to be beautiful from the outside. So, here's the pattern. The first thing you see are the walls. There's only one gate or door into the tabernacle area. Not multiple gates, not multiple doors, only one. Jesus said, I am the door. And how do we get in the door on a day-to-day basis? You enter into his courts with thanksgiving, into his gates with praise. So this pattern of prayer always begins with praise and thanksgiving. Now we're talking about relationship here. We're talking about fellowship. We're talking about communicating, learning how to communicate between us and God. We're learning how to connect with God daily. So, through prayer and praise and through praise and thanksgiving, I enter into that gate. Now I'm inside the walls. I'm in what's called the courtyard. And the first thing I see is the altar of sacrifice where lives of animals are taken and blood is shed and, and the sacrifices burn before God. That is a type of repentance. So once you enter into his presence in this pattern of prayer, and this is what we do. We do it and it's, it's, a, it's the, the way you do it when you first start living for God. Or you first become a Christian. 
The first thing you do after you get in the presence or begin in that journey of prayer is you go by the altar of sacrifice and take care of your sins. And then the, the, the priest would collect the blood from the sacrifice that is now being burned as a sacrifice for their sins. And he would go to the brazen laver or laver, which is a place where he washed. And it also was outside the tabernacle, inside the walls, but outside the tent or the tabernacle. And it was a place of cleansing. In the initial plan of salvation, that's water baptism. But spiritually, on a day-to-day basis for a Christian, Ephesians says we should be washed in the water by the word. So we repent, and we repent, we die at the brazen altar, at the brazen labor. This is where cleansing takes place in us. We let the Lord speak to our minds and our hearts about things in us that are foreign to Him, that are contrary to Him, that He need, He wants to deal with with us. Now, after a period of time of that, we enter into, get get this now, this is so critical. This is the stopping point for about 80 to 90% of all Pentecostals. In my lifetime and in my travels, the majority of Pentecostals never get past this next room. They come through the gates with prayer and thanksgiving and praise. We repent of our sins and die out to sin at the brazen altar. The word of God cleanses us from our sins through the blood of Jesus on a daily basis. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And then we go into the holy place. The holy place is not a place of fellowship with God. It is a place of service to God. There are three things in the holy place. There is a table with fresh baked bread on it. The word of God should be fresh in your life every day. And then there is this lamp stand. Uh, it's not a candlestick. They didn't have candles back then. But it was a, bra- a brass lamp stand that was hollow and they would fill it full of oil usually olive oil and they would take some flaxen uh, some flax and twist it into a wick and they would put it in the top of these seven candlesticks or the seven pipes of the lamp and they would light it and so it was a responsibility and service to God to make sure the bread stayed fresh to make sure that the lamp stand, uh, uh, the can, the, the lamp stand stayed full of oil and the wicks were trimmed and the light was burning. And then finally, right before the second veil, you come in from the courtyard into the holy place through the first veil. And, and right before the second veil, which leads into the holiest of all, is a, is a little altar of incense. And it, The incense is supposed to be kept in that and burning 24 hours a day. And so you have the bread, which is a type of the word of God that's supposed to be kept fresh in your life every day. You have the light from the lampstand that's supposed to be kept burning in your light and shining in you every day. Because the scripture says, uh, in, in him is light and in him is no darkness at all. So the light has to keep burning in 
that holy place. And then finally, the altar of incense, it represents prayer, which is supposed to be going up before God all day. So you can pray in the place of service. And never have a relationship with God. And there are so many people that's as far as they ever get in their walk with God. They praise, they give thanksgiving, they repent, they get cleansed, they eat some word every day, they, they have some light from God in their lives every day, and they pray as a service, an obligation to God every day, and that's as far as they get, and there is no ministry that takes place. Is this good? Yes, it is good. All of this is good in the beginning. But in the New Testament, that second veil was rent from top to bottom. Allowing access to every born again child of God. Because in the second veil was the Ark of the Covenant. It's the place of fellowship. With the presence of God. So the pattern of prayer of the tabernacle is to teach me how to get past my flesh and into fellowship with the presence of God every day. In my 47 plus years of ministry, and I'm sure you brethren have experienced the same thing, it's so sad that the only time so many Christians ever fellowship with the presence of God is at church. That is not the will of God. It's not the plan of God for you. It's not pleasing to God. You may start out with that being the case, but it is His will for you to learn to follow the pattern of the prayer represented by the tabernacle so you can learn to get into His presence every day. Every day, every day, every day, every day. If you're satisfied with just serving God, you're never going to know God. Paul said, or Paul, Jesus said to his disciples, you're my friends, you're not my servants, because you know all things that I'm permitted to tell you of God. So, friends and sons know stuff that servants will never know. So if your whole relationship with God is based on service, you never know the deep things of God. You never know the plan of God. You never know the purpose and direction of God. Because your whole focus is just serving God every day. And I agree that sons of God start out as servants while they're under tutors. But that's what the tabernacle pattern is supposed to be. A tutor to teach me from go, how to go from being a servant of God to becoming a son of God. Because only sons of God can fellowship with the Lord on a daily basis. In the story of Mary and Martha, Martha was the servant. Mary was the fellowshipper. Jesus' name.
There needs to be a deep dissatisfaction come to us who are stuck in only serving God. There needs to come a hunger, a thirst, a desire to get beyond that second veil and into the place of of fellowshipping with the Father. There needs to be that. Because if you stay satisfied as a servant, you very well may not survive spiritually long term. The prodigal son said, in, when he was in the pig pen and he was feeding the, 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 the pigs and he was so hungry, he almost ate what he was feeding the pigs. He said, I, I'm going back to my father's house because even my father's servants had bread enough to eat. Your father will take care of his servants. But what he gives a servant is not the same as what he gives his sons. And you can serve God and he will supply your your needs. He will take care of you. But you will never know the deep things of God. And you will never get the great blessings of God as a servant if you're not hungry to become a son. Well, what's the problem? Oh, here's the catch. Here's the, the, the thing we balk at. To leave the holy place and to get into the holiest of all where the presence of God is. That second veil represents the flesh. And the reason the veil, that second veil was rent in the temple when Jesus died is because the flesh, the only flesh God ever had, which was the flesh standing between man, uh, uh, between God and man, so man couldn't receive the Holy Ghost because it wasn't yet given because the only way God could fellowship with man was for the Spirit of God to be inside that pure flesh as an insulator between the purity of God, the holiness of God, and sinful man. But the proof that we now have a different place and access is that that that, that, that flesh was rent on the cross and to demonstrate to us what he was doing that, that second veil was also rent in the temple at the moment he died saying that we now have access and 50 days later the Holy Ghost was poured out and man was given the opportunity to move into the Holy The holiest of all. Oh, by the way, the phrase in the Greek, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost. There's two Greek words. One that's used for the entire temple complex. That's not the word used when it refers to the temple of the Holy Ghost. When the scripture refers to the temple of the Holy Ghost, the word that's used is the word that is exclusively used in the Greek. To refer to the holiest of all. So when the Bible says our bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost. 
It is referring to the Shekinah glory that was on that ark that is now infilled my life and making me the walking, moving, holiest of all. But to fellowship with that presence of God every day, this flesh has got to die spiritually. Galatians 2.20 for me, please. Paul said, I am. Not that I hope, not I hope to be. No, or when I die, this will be the case. He said, I am crucified. The tense of the verb there is, speaks of a past concluded action that continues to have present circumstances and consequences. So there was a day, Paul said, that the first day that I was truly crucified with Christ. But the impact of that is still working in my life today. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Well, if I was alive and I died, but I'm living again, how is that the case? Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I. Yet not I. But Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live. Everybody say now live. Not in the future. Not at the rapture. Not after I die. Not in heaven. Now. The life that I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God. Who gave... Who... who, who, uh, who loved me and gave himself for me. Not the faith, not faith in the Son of God. Now I've seen, I've read translations that translate it that way. There is a slight problem. When you look at the Greek text, you will find there is no preposition for the word in. The preposition there is for the word of. What's the big deal? The big deal is this. When it says, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. That of the Son of God is the prepositional phrase of possession. And I can say it this way, and it's exactly the same thing. I live by the Son of God's faith. Not my faith. When I allow the Holy Ghost to, to, to help me to be crucified with Christ, this flesh dies. It's, it's desire to, to live, to do. When it dies, I stop living by my faith. I live by His faith. And what was His faith? Jesus said, the man Christ Jesus said this, the Son can do nothing of Himself. What he sees the Father do, he does. What he hears the Father say, he says. That is the Son of God faith. But those of us who live in the holy place and never fellowship with God, we do the Pentecostal thing. It's such a habit that's so hard to break. I don't know how you put it in your languages, but in our language, this is the way we say it. I live for God. I work for God. That is so 
so predominant in Pentecostal ranks, it's ridiculous. And I've been in it all my life, and I catch myself still saying it, and I don't believe it whatsoever. The Lord said, if I needed anything, I wouldn't tell you. So how can I live for God? He wants to live for me. So if I'm living for God, I'm confessing the opposite about what Paul said. Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, Christ liveth in me. So either I'm living for God or God is living for me, but you can't do both. And the difference between those that live for God and work for God and those that are letting God live in them and work through them is that one is dead and the other isn't. One is dead to self and the other isn't. We love to shout in Pentecostal, but we don't love to die. I said we love to shout. We don't love to die. I said we love to shout. We love to rejoice. We don't love to die. Jesus said, I came to bring life and that you might have it more abundantly. He's not talking about one thing there. It's two completely different things. Everybody that's born again of water and the spirit is given life. But when you reach the place that you die out to your flesh, you're given abundant life. Not the same thing. It's not the same thing. It's those who live in the holy place and those who refuse to stay in the holy place and want to live in the holiest of all in the presence of God in fellowship with the Lord. It's not the same. So the first pattern of prayer, the pattern of the tabernacle, is intended to teach me how to get into the presence of God every day. And I'm here to tell you something. I, I don't mean this. I hope you don't take this negatively. But you can practice this pattern so much that you get in the presence of God and stay there so much that the amount of time you spent on this pattern first thing in the morning can be seconds. Because if I wake up, the first words out of my mouth are, thank you, Father. Almost every day. Well, it's not even a conscious thing. I wake up almost the first thing out of my mouth but by the, as I'm rolling out of the bed is, thank you, Father. And on those days when I say, thank you, Father, there's an instant answering back from him in the presence of God and I feel the Shekinah glory wrap all over me in that point I don't have to spend half the day working through those things because that first pattern is to get me and help me get in the presence of God so if I wake up and the moment I open my mouth and praise to him I am in his presence I don't have to stay there I can go to the next pattern Now, there are days 
I get up. You know how we are. We're all like this. Man, I've given myself to God today. I've preached. I've taught. I've given everything I've got. I deserve a rest. And what we mean by that is, we go take a vacation from his presence and do something carnal. It may not be sinful, but it's carnal. Oh, yeah. Okay, Lord, I'm taking a break now. I'm taking the phone off the hook. So if you got something to say, leave a voicemail. I'll check back with you when I'm ready. I do it. I can leave the most spiritual time I've ever been in, but be tired and give myself a break. And it doesn't take very long till I'm dealing with carnality again really all because I decide I deserve a break from God and his expectations. Oh, I don't say it like that, but that's exactly the way it works, isn't it? <laughs> isn't that the way it works? Well, I've been in church all day yesterday, so I deserve a break from Jesus today. So, Lord, I'm taking the day off spiritually. I'll check back with you tomorrow. Well, guess what? You don't check back with him tomorrow at the same place you were on the day you checked out. And so when that's the case, guess what I'm doing? I'm doing praise and thanksgiving and then I'm doing altar of sacrifice of repentance and I'm going to the brazen laver and try to get, try to get cleaned again. And then I go into the holy place and I check to make sure the bread is fresh and I make sure the candles, the lampstand is full of oil and there's some light in my house. And, and then I'm, I'm checking on that, 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 that's, that, sacrifice of a prayer that's supposed to go up before the veil and then and then I come up against my flesh you know the flesh that decided it needed a break so now I've got to deal with that will all older over again to get into his presence and so I got to do I got by the spirit I got to do some praying and get past that old self again so I can get back in the presence of God let me tell you something you know if you when you get you get where you really enjoy the presence of God every day and you're in connected with Him and there's constant communication between you going on, you don't, you don't have to go back and start that process over again very often. Do you try to avoid that? I got too much stuff going on in my life to have to go through that process over and over again. I've been there, done that, learned that. I'm here. Let's, let's, let's stay here. Let's don't go back and have to do that over again. That's what I tell myself. But even telling myself that there's sometimes, or how about this one? I don't know about you guys. Long trip. You've been on a gun. You travel 30 hours to get home. You know, you're out of it. And so you give yourself the right to be out of it. And, and you play catch up for days spiritually when you're out of it. Or how about this one? You're sick. When I get sick and then I get sick and tired of being sick, 
I don't want to, I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to read anything serious. I don't want to study anything serious. I just want to get over being sick. So I just want to sit there and lose myself in reading something entertaining or whatever. Let's get this done. And by the time I get well, I got to pray that pattern a few times to get back where I was because I granted myself the right to be carnal while I was sick. I don't know if I'm being too honest with you, but I can't help you if I'm not transparent. So, praise God. So we, we're able to get in the presence of God every day. It's awesome. So, what do I do in the presence of God? Okay, I'm in the presence of God. I'm fellowshipping with God. And as awesome as that is, next, you say, that ought to be enough. Was it enough for Adam? He fellowship with God every day. But he apparently got bored with something. He was alive when God made Eve. If he wasn't bored or whatever his problem was, the same God that made Eve could have made Eve the second. But when Eve made the wrong choice because she was tempted... Adam wasn't tempted by the fruit. Adam was tempted over losing Eve. Adam didn't choose what Eve chose. Eve chose to test the fruit. Adam chose to keep Eve. I got a question. What was going on between the two of them? That she could be standing at that tree looking at it. <laughs> I'm saying to you something to you young people. When the two of you are in a private place with your clothes off, it's too late to pray for God to keep you from sinning. Hope oh, God don't let me sin. Uh, not going to happen. Too late. You want to pray? You pray that God not let you get in a private place where you're tempted to do that. He'll answer that prayer. But when you've gone so far, you've given place to the devil. You've made opportunity for sin. And then you went so far not only to be alone where you knew there was no accountability and no oversight. And you took your clothes off. It's too late. You've already made up your mind. And you're just praying to try to blame it on God. Well, I asked you to stop me and you didn't. I don't know why I'm saying this right now. It's not in the notes. But I'm going to let you think about it a little bit while I take a little sip of 7-Up. Oh, it's Sprite today, okay? I can't tell the difference. She could. I could. So here we are. 
It is not enough for us to just fellowship with God. That's why it's not enough to just be faithful to church. You can't, you, you, you're never going to be happy. You're never going to be satisfied just being a faithful church member. You will eventually begin to look at the tree and wonder what you're missing. I'm going to say it to you again. If you're just involved with church and coming to church is enough for you, you will eventually spend time at the tree wondering what you're missing. And this voice is going to come to you and lie to you and tell you all this positive. Adam, where are you? I'm hiding (laughs) from God. (laughs) Give me a break. Why are you hiding? I'm afraid. Why are you afraid? I'm naked. And this is what the Lord said to him. Who told you you were naked? It wasn't God. He wouldn't be asking the question. Adam didn't tell Eve, oh, look, you're naked. Eve didn't say to Adam, oh, look, you're naked. So who told them they were naked? The same one. That told her about how all inviting and positive that this was. Is the same one as soon as they disobeyed God. Was the first one to accuse them of doing wrong. Oh my friends. Listen to me. When you sin. The first voice that talks to you about your sin and failure. Is never God. Because that voice tells you how much you failed, how terrible you are, how hopeless you are. That first voice always says that. And that's the same one that talked you, talked to you about doing what you did. So if you're going to be saved from your failure, you got to wait on the second voice that says, I love you, child. I'm willing to forgive you, child. I'm willing to help you, child. I've forgiven you before. I'll forgive you again. Because the first voice after sin is always the same voice that talked to you to get you to do that. And he, the, the inviter becomes the accuser as soon as you fail. And too many people make decisions on what the first voice says after they fail. And they end up lost. It's not enough, folks. It's not enough to just come to church and be in the presence of God. Nobody can be faithful to God until the end like that. It's not enough. It's not enough. You will find some other source of joy. You will find some other source of satisfaction. If you only come to church and try to stay saved as your goal. 
I love God. More importantly, he loves me. And he's been so merciful to me and forgiven me so much. But I'm here to tell you something. I can't stay saved based on relationship alone. He created me to need a challenge. I got to have a challenge. I got to have a mission. I got to have a purpose. I can't stay saved just to stay saved. I got to have a challenge. I've got to have a purpose. I've got to have a mission. I've got to have a reason that when my eyes open in the morning, I can't wait to get up out of bed and start my day because there's things to be done, important things to see, prayers to pray, study to do, people that need to hear a word from God. I've got to have a reason to get up in the morning. I can't stay saved or be saved just because I'm saved. And you know what I've discovered? I've never pastored anybody different than that. Everybody I've ever pastored, the ones that made it, were the ones that allowed God to give them a purpose, a mission, a plan for their life, a challenge in their life to keep them motivated. Okay, that's enough. Second pattern. The second pattern is ministry. The second pattern of prayer. Second Chronicles 7 verse 12, if you would please. The second pattern is the path to fruitfulness. The first pattern is the path to fellowship. The second pattern is a path to fruitfulness. Jesus said, I've spoken these things unto you. That my joy might remain into you, but in you and that your joy might be full. You can't be saved just by the joy of the Lord. He knew I needed my joy to be full. His joy is in me regardless of my circumstances. But my joy is the joy of the fruitful one. So here it is. 2 Chronicles 7 verse 12. And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for a house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will will heal their land. Now mine eyes shall be open and mine ears attend unto the prayer that is made in this place, the temple. For now have I chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever and mine eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually. Notice the efforts the Lord would go to, back to verse 13 please, to get our attention To demonstrate that we are not fruitful. Look at the efforts. Look at the effort. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, the Lord says. If I command the locusts to devour your harvest before it can be reaped. If I send pestilence among my people. 
Some say this is sicknesses of the people. But since the first two have to do with the harvest and the land and fruitfulness, the third one also has to be a pestilence up, uh, upon the, 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 the land and upon the crops so that they are not, they're not come to fruitfulness. They don't come to fruitfulness. Hear me, hear me. Whether I whisper this or scream this till I'm hoarse and can't talk another word. You do not want to stand before God without fruit. You don't want to do that. John one or John fifteen verse one, please. I know some of you are tired, you've checked out, and that's okay. But I'm gonna teach this because hopefully there'll be a day you want to come back and hear this. Okay? John fifteen one. I am the true vine, my ho- my father's the husbandman. Every branch in me, every every branch in me that beareth not fruit. He taketh away. And every branch in me that beareth fruit, he purgeth it. And the Greek word there is he prunes it. That it may bring forth more fruit. So even to those that are fruitful, he works in their lives to cut off the dead things so that they can be fruitful again. Next verse. Now ye are clean, and that Greek word for clean is exactly the same word as purge or prune in the previous verse. Now ye are pr- pruned or purged or uh, uh, through the word which I have spoken unto you. Next word. Abide in me. <laughs> in other words, learn to pray the first pattern of prayer. So you and I are in fellowship. Because if we become in fellowship on a regular basis, if you abide in me and I abide in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in mine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. If you are unfruitful, the first place to look is, do you fellowship in the presence of God every day? Because if you do and you abide in him, and he abides in you. There will be fruit. Next verse. I am the vine. Ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him. The same bringeth forth. How much? Jesus said. The harvest. Truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. The Greek word translated plenteous is exactly the same Greek word translated much right here. The same bringeth forth plenteous fruit. And here's the key how it's done. For without me, you can do nothing. And guess what the Greek word for can there is? It is the verb form of dynamis. Supernatural impartation to do 
and empowerment to do what you cannot do yourself. Next verse. If any man abide not in me, you get satisfied with service, with just coming to church. You're not interested in, 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 in being a part of the plan of God, the purpose of God, the kingdom of God. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them in to the fire and they are burned. This verse gives me the right to preach. If you don't eventually reach the place of fruitfulness in the kingdom, you are going to hell. Oh, I have been crucified by men for decades for that statement right there. Sorry, would you like to go five hours today so I can have an hour to prove that statement to you? Because it can be done. Oh, Brother Wright, this isn't talking about seeing people saved. This is talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Oh, okay. So I'm a branch on the vine. And the fruit that's born on the end of my branch, when I sow it, God grows. Because fruit produces after its kind. <laughs> Verse 1 again, please. Let's look at that. Let's just see this one more time. I am the true vine. Now, is this the deity talking? Or the logos made flesh talking? Well, there's only one way that can be the case. I am the vine, my father's husband, next verse, every branch. If I'm a branch of the vine, I am not deity. So the vine has to be the humanity, the man Christ Jesus, the body of Christ. And as a branch off the body of Christ, whatever is produced on the end of this branch... If it's sowed, it will grow whatever the vine and the branch are. And preaching this is the fruit of the Spirit is a cop-out. It's a cop-out. Because we don't want to lose the income from the people that don't want to be involved with Jesus and are willing to come to church and keep putting money in the offering. So we don't want to preach to them that if you don't grow in God and, and reach the place where you're a fruit bearer, uh, uh, because they may get offended to leave. Because there's a lot of places to let them sit and go to hell and just take their money. So as the, as oversight ministry, as a bishop or as a, as the elder or pastor of a, le- a group of people, I have a responsibility to minister and lead people to grow in God to the place that they birth children. Now, let's be honest. I don't want my six-year-old granddaughter to have a baby. I don't want my nine-year-old granddaughter to have a baby. Frankly, I don't want my 18-year-old granddaughter to have a baby. Or a 19-year-old, because neither one of them are married yet. 
So I acknowledge there has to be a growing period because, it, it, you know, when a, when, a, when a girl turns 12 approximately, she is capable of producing a child. But you don't want her to do that then. So it is possible that people can sit for a while and grow and learn and, 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 and they're not fruitful. The point of what I'm preaching is there has to be a place, a time, a, 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 an occasion, a point in the process where you grow to the point that you become involved in the work of the kingdom and people get saved. And one of those most important places for that is prayer. Prayer. You will never truly get involved with people to see them saved if you don't get in prayer, involved in prayer for their salvation. Because if I get involved in trying to get people saved without first getting involved in prayer for their salvation... All I'm trying to do is to get members to join the church and follow a doctrine. I'm not trying to get people saved. Because if I really wanted them to be eternally saved, I would pray for them. Oh, come on, brother, right? If a person's saved, they're saved. Really? Have you not read what Jesus said? Every tree that your father, heavenly father has not planted shall be rooted up. It is possible for people to be baptized in Jesus' name and receive the Holy Ghost and the Father not claim them because that which is born or produced by the flesh is flesh and that which is born or produced by the Spirit is spirit. And if I learn to use psychology to get people out of seats and come to the altar because I've learned to work on their emotions and use psychology, they'll come up front and do what I say. But they're responding not to the drawing of the Spirit, but to psychology. And then they will repent because they have been told to do that to the best of their ability. And if they ask for the Holy Ghost, the Lord's going to give them the Holy Ghost. But He did not plant them. And here's the other problem. And you can't pastor them. Because they're Ishmael, not Isaac. Ishmael was born of the flesh. Isaac was born of the spirit, born of promise. And there's always enmity between those who are born of the spirit and those that are born of flesh. Abraham produced Ishmael just as surely as he produced Isaac. But Ishmael was born of the flesh, out of fleshly efforts and fleshly means. And Isaac was born of the Spirit, out of promise and in God's timing. And there was enmity between the two. And God never recognized Ishmael. But Abraham had to. And Abraham had to give a blessing to Ishmael because he was a son. And that's part of our trouble today. Because surely you know what races and peoples have come from Ishmael. They dwell in the Middle East. 
And they now have their own religion because they couldn't follow all the way Abraham's religion and where it went. So they claim Abraham is their father, but that's where the divergence takes place. And that's why there's such enmity between them as followers of, as children of Abraham and Isaac's seed as children of Abraham. There's such enmity between the Jews and Christians. They hate us. Well, guess what? Churches are just like that. Churches can be full of people. Who are Isaac or, or Ishmael's born by fleshly programs and fleshly methods and fleshly efforts. And when you try to have one body and it's filled with the mixture of Ishmael's offspring and Isaac's offspring, you're going to have a problem. I made a statement in church here Sunday morning. Every apostolic church needs a place nearby that is willing to attract those who don't want to make the journey. Who's willing to take them in and preach them a comfortable doctrine so that they will leave the apostolic church alone. Every apostolic revival minded church who wants to be a part of the harvest needs some place for people to be attracted to that don't want to make the commitment all the way in the kingdom. Now, I, I don't run them off. I want them to stay there as long as they will because who knows if the Lord will change them. Who knows? But there comes a point where they cannot stay and the church go forward. And you, we don't run them off, but when they start to go, we hug them and embrace them and say, we love you, God bless you, we'll see you, uh, don't come back. No, you don't think that. Oh, you think that, you don't say that. You say, well, I'm sorry. I, uh, you, you, I'm not trying to be unkind here. I'm not trying to be unkind. But the bottom line is, a mixed multitude couldn't go in the promised land. Israel came out of Egypt a mixed multitude. But the mixed multitude didn't go in the promised land. Everything that was more, that was more Egyptian than it was uh, a Jew or Hebrew. And everything that longed for where they left rather than, than desire with all their heart where they were going. Died in the wilderness. So that Israel would have the faith to go into the promised land and receive the promises of God. So, Second uh, Chronicles 7 is talking about fruitfulness. So, John 15 and 7, he talks all about the branch of the vine. Then he says this, If ye abide in me and my, my word abides in you, you shall ask what you will and it... That is what we're calling spiritual warfare. Because when you abide in him and he abides in you, you reach the place where now you can pray what needs to be prayed, what you feel to pray. 
and it will happen because he abides in you. You abide in him and his word abides in you. And so now you can ask whatever comes to you to pray for people to be saved. Oh, there's another verse in this context. Verse 8. Herein. Herein what? Herein all this discussion of fruitfulness and being fruitful. Herein is my Father glorified. Oh, and listen to this. So that ye bear much fruit. Herein is my Father glorified. You want to glorify God? Good church is wonderful. But that's not how you glorify God. You want to glorify God? See much fruit born. Oh, and guess what? This is one of the signs of true discipleship. That you bear much fruit. So... (laughs) We go to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 13. If I shut up heaven, there'd be no rain. If I command the locusts to devour the land. If I send pestilence among my people. If my people, verse 14, which are called by my name, that, that qualifies who he's talking to, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Heal their land from what? Heal their land from no rain, from locusts and pestilence that's affecting the crop. In other words, I'm going to bring you or restore you to fruitfulness if you learn and practice praying this pattern of prayer. Now, how do we know it's a different pattern of prayer than the tabernacle pattern? Look at where you deal with sin in this pattern compared to where you deal with sin in the tabernacle. In the tabernacle, once you enter into the court, the first thing you deal with is sin. Look how much you pray in this prayer before you ever get to dealing with sin. Why? Oh, Jesus, help me. Why? Because... (laughs) Because in the tabernacle pattern, I'm dealing with those sins that occur on a fairly regular basis. Sins I know about, sins I don't know about. And the the way I deal with that is, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's the first pattern. But this is different. This second pattern, that that turning from your wicked ways, is the pruning to produce fruitfulness. It's dealing with some habitual things. It's dealing with some some weaknesses in your your life where you keep finding yourself falling into the same thing over and over again. And the Lord's going to forgive you in that first pattern of prayer every time you sin. Israel had to offer sacrifices every day. But in this pattern of prayer, we're going to deal with more about the the root of sin in our life. The things in our life that lead us to commit sin. The open doors in us to deal with sin. But look where you deal with it. You deal with it after this other stuff. So if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves. 
Oh, my. Humble myself. Isn't it amazing? The only implication about any of this in the first pattern of prayer is I got to deal with the veil of my flesh if I want to stop just serving God and start fellowshipping with God. But here, rather than that being the last thing I deal with to get in the presence of God, it's the first thing I have to deal with to become fruitful. Why? What do you mean? Well, look, this what it says. If my people which are called by name shall humble themselves. This is not talking about what God does in our life to bring us to the end of ourselves so we trust in him and not ourselves. This is very specific terminology. Oh, there's another place that uses this terminology. I just happen to remember it. I'm tr- you, you, I, you're looking blank-eyed at me. I'm just trying to... Get your attention. It didn't work, so I'll just skip that. First Peter chapter 5, beginning with verse 5. Somebody needs to be listening. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud... And giveth grace to the humble. Now that sounds like we're safe from that till you keep reading. Oh, I'm not proud. Wait a minute. By whose definition you're not proud? Okay. Next verse. Who are these humble? God resists the proud, give grace to the humble. Humble yourselves. Whoa, didn't we just read that somewhere before? If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves. Look, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Now in the English, you see those two dots at the end of the word time? That's called a colon. And the grammatical rule of a colon is that which follows the colon expounds upon or explains what precedes the colon. So what precedes the colon? Humble yourselves. Uh, 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 no, 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 don't give it to them too quick here. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. So God resists the proud. He actually, the same, that's the same Greek word that's used in verse 8 that says resist the devil. So the same way we're supposed to resist the devil, God Resist the proud. And who are the proud? Those that haven't humbled themselves. Well, how do you humble yourself so God doesn't resist you? Next verse. Casting all your care upon him. For he cares for you. Oh, look, C-A-S-T-I-N-G. He didn't say cast all your cares. You could say that's a one-time event. But casting implies it's an ongoing process. What does it mean to cast? The Greek word there for cast is balo. 
which, mean, which means to throw or to put so far from you, it is not easy to take back. What are my cares? Everything you care about. If it matters to you, it's a care. Now, I'm going to use a very carnal example here. But in the World Cup, I don't care which nations win or lose. Except the U.S., And what, how your team's doing is of no concern to me unless we're playing you. And your team is important to you, but it's not important to me at all. I'm not going to check your scores. I'm not going to see how you're doing. I don't care. But when you're playing me, now I care about your team. I care about your team losing. I didn't say I asked God for my team to win you to lose. Here's what I do. You ready? I cast the care over who wins so that I don't let the emotions over the win or the loss get in my spirit. Because I'm not willing for natural things to affect my spirit. And emotions are too easily used by the adversary as open doors into my spirit. So I can't follow it. I can't see who's winning or losing without casting because I have to give up my care over who wins so that I close the door so the adversary can't use natural things to affect me spiritually. I went to the United States Naval Academy. The colors are blue and gold. We play American football. Well, they also have a, a football team like the world. We call it soccer, as you know, but we have one of those too. But I don't really care whether they win or lose. But American football, that matters to me. And the problem with that is... When we're playing the Army, which is the Academy for Army Officers, and we're the Academy for Navy Officers, I don't want Army to win. And I spent four years at the Academy saying, beat Army thousands of times. And I am brainwashed. And I still want them to beat Army. And there are rooms in my house that has signs up that say, Beat Army. <laughs> and while that's important to me, when it's time for the Army-Navy game, I start praying weeks in advance. I get you, Lord. I don't want the outcome of this game to affect my spirit. I'm serious. I, it matters to me, and since it matters to me, I have to cast it. Because I don't want to be vulnerable to the things the world is vulnerable to. I see, I'm as serious with you as I could be. I do that. I do that. 
Why? Because it matters to me. I care. But what I care the most about is giving up control to God and not letting the adversary have any tools to use to affect my faith and my walk with God. Oh, okay. So there's a promotion coming up on your job. And you're doing everything you can to get that promotion because you want that promotion because it's more money and it means you get more benefits and whatever. And so you've made up your mind. You're going to get that promotion somehow because you're in control and you don't trust that the father knows what's best for you. And so you work really hard to get that promotion and then somebody else gets it and you're all deflated, discouraged, defeated. And guess who you're mad at? God. Because you deserve that promotion. Do you care about it? Cast it. Does it matter to you? Cast it. What does it mean to cast? You give up emotional and spiritual and mental control of it. I am a decision maker by personality. I'm a fixer. I like to analyze stuff, come up with a solution, and fix it. And I have had to let the Lord cause every bit of that to die in me. Because the moment my mind begins to try to figure something out, I know I haven't cast that. Because when I cast it, I quit trying to figure it out. I quit trying to work through it. Because when I cast it, I give up control of it, timing of it to God, and I wait on Him. And He always comes back at the time He's ready and gives direction. And He blesses His direction. But guess what? Oh, let's go back to verse 5. God resists the proud. So you hold on to control and you try to make stuff go like you think it ought to go and you've got an adversary and it's not the devil. God himself is resisting your efforts to do it. God, not the devil, God fights against the success of your plans. But it seems right, yes. Your plan seems right. But there's a verse that says that. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. To your carnal natural intellect, your decisions may seem right. But if they were made without giving up control to God and letting Him make that decision, then God is the adversary of that decision. But I'm doing this for God. He didn't ask you to do it for Him. He asked you to give it up to Him. 
He asks you to surrender it to Him. He asks you that. In the church, you don't covet jobs. You don't covet positions. You don't covet opportunities. You cast. I don't want to go anyplace He's not sending me. I don't want to say anything He's not giving me to say. I don't want to do anything He's not saying to do. I don't want to do that. Because I'm not in competition for anything with anybody for what I'm doing. The only competition is whether or not I'm going to do my will or do God's will. And if I can settle that I'm only going to do God's will, then whatever God leads me to do, I can count on Him being for it and working for it rather than Him being the adversary of it. And you know what we do? We come up with a plan. And what do we do next? We ask God to bless what we're doing. When you pray, God bless this sermon. God bless this song. God bless this program. God bless, God bless, God bless. You are confessing. That he is not the author of it. Because the blessing of God is automatically, inherently a part of the direction of God. But when that direction and plan came from some place other than God, On some level in me, I know where it came from, and it wasn't God. So now I'm committed to the plan. I'm committed to the direction, and I feel compelled to ask God to bless it so that I'm not embarrassed. But here's the problem. He loves us too much to do that. Because if he helps you succeed when it was your plan, your idea, your directions, guess what you're going to do next time? The same thing over again. Because you're going to expect God is going to bless you to do your will, your way. But he's far more important. It's far more important to him. He's far more interested in teaching you to seek for his will, his plan, his way. So what does he have to do to your plan? He's got to work against it so it fails. The greatest curse spiritually you could ever be cursed with is for your plan to work that didn't come from God. For the sermon that you preached that you preached that didn't come from God to seemingly produce a response and maybe even what appears to be some fruit, you weren't blessed, you were cursed. And when, what, you know what the scripture says? If I don't have a love for the truth, God himself will send strong delusion and I'll believe a lie and be damned. That's not just talking about doctrine. 
If I'm persistent, then I'm going to preach out of my own heart and my own spirit instead of waiting on God and hearing what God says. The Lord will allow me to be cursed because he will send what will appear to be blessings to to cause me to believe that that is him so that I am deluded, deceived, and trapped in my deception and I will be lost. You know what happens to some of those preachers preaching their own sermons? Some of them become conference speakers. Because their sermons are eloquent and entertaining. And I think you already found out how the Lord and I feel about eloquence last night. So no use to abuse you with that again. Fruitfulness requires life. And life is a product of relationship. So the first pattern is so important because it teaches me how to have relationship. And if I truly have relationship, then I can now enter in the second pattern. Why? Get this. He said, if ye abide in me, my words abide you, you shall ask what you will, shall be done unto you. Abide in me as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Well, what does that mean? Here's all I have to do to be fruitful. I have to get a healthy, strong connection. Between me as the branch and the vine. Why? Because all of the life-giving flow that comes up through the roots out of the soil into the vine passes in and through me as the branch if my connection between me as the branch and the vine is healthy. That's called relationship. And when he said abide, he communicated to us how continuous that relationship is supposed to be. A branch can't just connect when it's seasoned to bear fruit and disconnect the rest of the time. A branch has to abide in the vine. It has to stay connected. Now, you don't experience this in Singapore, Singapore, but some places where they grow grapes, sometimes they have snow or ice storms. And in the wintertime, the, the ice can collect on the branches and it'll put stress on that branch and it'll partially separate from the vine. But when the ice melts and the weights off that branch, it comes back up and it looks normal. You don't even know any damage has been done till it's time for fruit. Jesus said, without me, ye can do nothing. The word without means separated or apart from me. Even if that separation is not visible to the eye. So when that branch is stressed by the ice and then the ice melts and it comes back up where it's supposed to be, you don't see the separation at the connection. Except this happens. Sometimes 
there's only enough flow that comes from the vine to the branch to produce the leaves. So it looks like it's healthy. It just never bears any fruit because there's a separation at the junction between the branch and the vine. That's why when you're, when there's not fruit, the first place you look is you go back to that first pattern of prayer. Okay, Lord. Okay. What have I allowed in my heart and life that's separating you and I? Because if I'm abiding in Him, when it comes time to be humble, to cast my cares, I'm going to know there's nothing better I can do with my cares than to give up control over them, to give them to Him so that He can be in control and then I can trust Him. He is my Father. And I can trust Him because He is my Father. How many of you have raised a small child? Small children become rapidly become, quickly become curious. And how many times do you have to say to that child when they're small, no. Do they like it? If children are supposed to like, no, I've got seven very abnormal children, grandchildren. Because none of them like the word no. Remember that stuff about grandparents, grandmothers? She would barely ever even say no to them. No, 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 no. She's the good guy. She would leave that to me. And I would have to say, no, no. No, no. And if they didn't listen because I wasn't comfortable spanking them, I would pick them up and sit them in a chair and say, now you're staying there till you listen to me. Even if that means you're here for the next three days. (sighs) And you know what? Let me give you a little parenting advice. You never start disciplining a child over a thing Unless you're determined to win. If you start disciplining and you give in before you've won. And it's not a contest. I'm talking about winning for their soul's sake. You lose because you just taught that child. They can get away with it. So when God is disciplining you. You're either going to walk away or he's not going to give in till you see it his way. Why is God doing all this stuff to me? Because I'm stubbornly resisting his correction. And he loves me too much to stop till he makes his point. So what do we do? First night of, uh, of call of war, what I teach. We pray for God to fix everything we don't like. Except most, most of the stuff we don't like is God's correction. So we're praying to God who's correcting us to stop the stuff he's doing to correct us. And the greatest curse you could have is that he listens to you. Because when he concludes you're a child that can't be corrected, he no longer claims you as his child and you're now fatherless. Because you won't receive correction. Hebrews 12, look it up. 
So the branch has to have this relationship over here. A relationship of a fellowship, but it's a relationship of dependency. It's the brand, it's the vine that's holding me in place. It's the vine that determines how far off the ground I am, not me. It's the vine that makes all this decision. I'm just clinging to the vine. And if my relationship with the vine is right, in the season it's supposed to, out on the end of my branch, there's going to be some beautiful, beautiful grapes that are going to be formed. Fruit proving that, you know what that fruit proves? I got a healthy relationship with the vine. And there's life flowing through me. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and he'll exalt you in due time. In due time. How do I do that? Casting all my cares upon him, for he cares for you. Let's go to Luke 8, about verse, oh man, I'm sorry, this one's blanked on me. It happens once in a while, I'm I'm sorry to say. (laughs) Go to Luke 8, and Ah, come on, here it is. Okay. Luke 8 and verse um, 11. And I want to read quickly a couple, first couple of verses, if you don't mind. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are they that hear. Then cometh the devil and taketh away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. Now, listen to this. They on the rock are they which when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no root, which for a while believe, and in time of temptation fall away, That which that, and that which fell among thorns are they, which when they have heard, go forth. The crop grows, but before it can be fruitful, here's what happens, and are choked with cares and riches and the pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. Now, Mark chapter 4 and verse 18. Mark 4 18. And these are they which are grown, are sown among thorns. Such as hear the word, listen now, and the cares of this life, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts of everything, other things entering in, choke the word, and it becometh unfruitful. I hear the word, I receive the word with joy, I'm happy about the word, it takes root in my life, and it's beginning to grow, and it looks like I'm going to be fruitful, but then about the time I should be fruitful, it doesn't happen. Why? Because I have weeds growing in my heart I've allowed to stay there. Now we understand the lust of pleasure, the lust of riches. Oh, that's bad stuff. But how about this one? The cares of life. 
You have any idea how many, many apostolics are not fruitful? Not because they're lusting for pleasure. Not because they're lusting for wealth. But because they refuse to cast their cares and the cares of life choke the fruitfulness out of them. Oh, it's not, I'm just a worrier. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm just a worrier. I, you know, I just, it's just me. It's my personality. I'm just a worrier. I just worry about stuff. It's no big deal. Really. So carrying cares is equated to, in severity, to serving mammon instead of God, the lust of riches. The Bible says you can't serve two gods. You're going to choose between God and mammon. So he calls mammon idolatry. So if you're lusting for riches, you're, you're worshiping an idol god. And if you love pleasure, and Paul said in, in uh, think in 2 Timothy, that in the last days people will be lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. And so those two things, the idolatry of serving the idol mammon, and the and the lust of pleasure rather than loving God, those two things are equated with carrying your cares instead of casting them. And you want me and God and everybody else to believe it's just your personality and it's okay? It's not okay. It's pride. It's not okay. It's idolatry. It's not okay. It's self-will. And on top of that, it makes you unfruitful. And that means means you get cut off instead of being allowed to stay as a branch and you're cast into the fire. Is it innocent now? I'm going to say it to you again. I said it last night. I'm standing here in this meeting representing, being the voice crying out for the lost that want to be saved, that need to be saved, that needs the church to do what the Bible teaches so that they can be saved. And I don't have to be easy on you and allow them to go to hell. Sorry. I'm not trying to be unkind. I'm not trying to be rude. I didn't come here to be offensive. But hear me. Hear me right now. We're talking about eternal souls going to spend eternity in hell because the church is too full of its own pride and wants to run its own lives rather than humbling themselves, casting their cares upon God so they can be fruitful. Let me tell you what. This is the middle of the day. And here you sit in this kind of atmosphere. You, you, by sitting here, you're demonstrating you're not here and struggling with a love of mammon. And you could be a lot of places, but for the most part, sitting here demonstrates that you are not struggling with a love of pleasure rather than God. Especially those of you from out of town that don't live here. It costs you time and money to get here. Yeah. That, that's, that's a pretty significant a demonstration of your hunger, your desire. So what is it that will keep us unfruitful when we go home? The unwillingness to give it all up to God 
and let him run our lives and be in control. Well, how much am I supposed to do, brother, right? Casting all your cares. All. Not some, not most. All. Well, I'll give him all of that, everything, but this one thing, I want it. You know what the Bible teaches? You know what Paul said to Martha, or Jesus said to Martha, in, 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 in the Greek words there, and I've taught that on that story many times over the years. It's been a while, but I've taught it. He actually said to her that, Martha, you being full of care, the reason we don't cast our care is because we want to control the outcome. We want it to go our way. We want to control the outcome. If I'm willing to trust my father, I have no problem casting it. And whatever outcome he gives to what I'm casting is okay with me because I trust the father. But when I hold on to control, I'm saying to my father, I don't trust you to make this work out like I want it to work. So I'm not humbling myself in this area. I'm not giving in on this. I'm telling you how I want it to do. So therefore, if I pray, I don't pray and cast it on, on God. I pray and tell God what to do, how to do it, and when to do it. How's that working out for you? It's not working. I was 24 years old when my wife and I drove into Annapolis, Maryland to start our church. There was nobody there. The pain, the loneliness, the struggle, the difficulty to see that grow and be built and all of that. And in November of 2005, he said to me, It's time to give up this pulpit. I wasn't even 60 years old. I wasn't sick. I wasn't tired. I wasn't sick and tired. I wasn't ready to retire. I didn't, it wasn't going to be retirement anyway. I wasn't ready. I didn't want to give it up. He said, do it. And in our movement, you don't give a pulpit up till you're so old you can't hardly get around. And some will do it from a wheelchair because that's the case. Because they're not giving it up, buddy. Woo, that's my pulpit. I'm not giving that up. But the Lord said, that's not your pulpit. That's my pulpit. You didn't build this church. I did. And it's time for it to move on. I got other stuff for you to do than just this. And it's time for you to let it go. And I'm going to tell you something. I have said to Antioch, that's the name of our church, Antioch the Apostolic Church. I've said to Antioch, the greatest act of Christianity you will ever see from Chester Wright is for me to sit on this platform and have no, and participate, not participate in this church at all. I have no way to demonstrate my faith in Christianity any more than that. Because to sit here on this platform, with the pulpit that wouldn't be here if I hadn't come to this town and let somebody else lead the service or let somebody else preach and, and not even say anything in that service. 
Oh, Lord have mercy. Maybe you can do that. It takes God for me to do it every day. Hadn't got old yet. It's not every day. <laughs> yes, sir. You sure know what I'm talking about, don't you? <laughs> yeah. Every day. It's easier to stay away. If I stay away, I, I can handle it better. If I'm there, sitting there, oh God. And I'm, yeah, yeah. And, and I'm sitting there and I'm saying, why don't you ask me to say something? Because he's already experienced that. Because if he asks me to say something, he doesn't know if he'll ever get it back. But the Lord knew what he was doing. And I'm now, I just turned 70. And I die to that every day because it still matters to me. I still care about it. And so I have to die to it. Then I don't try to take it back. Because that's not the will of God. If my people which are called by my name. Say Chronicles 714 again, ma'am. Thank you. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves. If you don't do this first step, forget the rest of it. Forget it. If my people which are called by my name will humble themselves. Give up control. Cast all my care. And then pray. This is just a general word for prayer. It's what it's, it includes all kinds of prayer and pray. In other words, participate in the kingdom and in whatever means and way and method or direction God gives you for this day. You just pray. But what happens after that is you, you're not satisfied with just prayer. Now, now you want to seek his face. Now you want a different level of fellowship than just feeling his presence. Now you want to move into a depth of him and being with him and partnershiping with him more than you've ever been before. And when you get there in that place, in that holy place of, of the Shekinah glory of God and in that holy presence, then I, the light of his word and spirit will shine in my heart. And those things that those secret things, those hidden buried things that are keeping me those weeds those tares that the seed is sown among he will begin to reveal those things and if I let him he'll begin to take those out of my life and I will become fruitful then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land praise God and now we're here. If there's any more misunderstood scriptures in all the Bible than what's called the Lord's Prayer, I don't know what they are. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. I've learned to fellowship with the Lord. I've become fruitful. 
But that causes me to be a, want to be a part of his kingdom. Now I want to fellowship with his authority and be a conduit for his authority to be exercised in the earth. God gave Adam dominion over the earth, over everything. Do you know what Satan wanted when he tempted man to sin and they sinned in God? They gave up dominion. What did they give up? The authority to rule. When Satan says to Jesus in the wilderness, if you see all these kingdoms, if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you all these kingdoms. He was offering Jesus the kingdoms without having to go to the cross. And Satan will always tempt every true man of God and child of God with getting what you're hungering for and trying to show you a way where you don't have to die. John 12, except a grain of wheat fall in the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. Satan tried to tempt the Son of God with receiving the kingdoms without the cross. Oh, God, have mercy on the church today because there are too many leaders that have taken him up on that deal. They bypassed the cross. They bypassed being crucified with Christ. And they're trying to exercise a dominion that they didn't get from God. They got from the adversary because of that deal. Did Satan have the right to make that offer to Jesus? Oh yeah. Why? Because of what happened in the garden. That's how he became God of this world. Because essentially Adam was given the opportunity to be God of this world. He was given dominion over the earth. He had dominion all over all the animals on the earth. But when Adam sinned, he forfeited the dominion to Satan. And Satan has been exercising that dominion, that authority all these years. And here we are. Since the day of Pentecost, there's a new kid on the block. There's new people here. And these people are receiving true authority in God. And these people have a different authority than what Satan has. He has usurped authority that he acquired by causing man to fall or, or being involved with man falling. But God is in the process, if we allow him to, of him restoring spiritual dominion to the church again not over governments not over 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 all that stuff but a spiritual dominion so that the lost can be freed spiritual dominion which is expressed by the word kingdom and as i said the first night we are born again into the kingdom. We're not born again into the church. We're born again into the kingdom. If you're trying to be in the church without being in the kingdom, you're lost. You're not really in the church if you're not being a part of the kingdom. 
Upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Unto you I give the keys to the kingdom. Not the keys to the church. The church is the body of Christ. But the kingdom is what the church does. It's who, it's who the church is. We're a part of the kingdom. I know we've gone a long time today. My feet are telling me that. But I am begging you. If you could just give me a few more minutes. And would you bring your mind back and your spirit. Some of you have zoned out. I understand. You're tired. You haven't really adjusted yet for the time change. I understand that. I'm not being unkind to you. But if you could just stay with me another few minutes. I've taught all of this to get here. Because this is the calling of the church. And if we do all that other stuff and never get to this, we have not fulfilled the will of God in the earth or in our lives. Kingdom. First Corinthians 4.20 says the kingdom of God is not in word but in power. Romans 14, 17 says, The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. The kingdom of God. Jesus said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation, for the kingdom of God is within you. Jesus, John, and Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And in Acts chapter 1, before his ascension, the scripture says that he taught again, reminded them again, the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. That's the last thing he did before the ascension. He taught them things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So what he did was, he teach, taught them their purpose. Their first and foremost spiritual purpose in the earth was to pray the prayer of the kingdom. After this manner pray ye. Matthew 6, 8, or 9, thank you. After this manner therefore pray ye. Can't just anybody pray our Father. Unless you have, ex- have surrendered to His fatherhood. By letting him be in charge of your life. He may be your father by conception. But he's not your father by relation. There are places in the world today. In the United States including one of them. That a lot of people have a biological father. They don't really even know. Who's not involved with their life at all. And for a lot of Christians. The Lord God is only their biological, spiritually biological father. He's not their father in relationship. And I like the word our because it reminds us that it's not me, it's us. We're the body of Christ. We're in the kingdom of God. 
But notice that before you can do any of this kingdom praying, the first thing you've got to do, which is, which will be birthed in you as you pray and learn how to fellowship with God in the first dimension of prayer. And you learn how to trust God and become fruitful in the second dimension of prayer. Then He will become your Father. My wife had breast cancer three times. The first time, they used a needle and biopsied it, but that was all that happened. It was biopsied. They called it precancer. Later, they did it again, and it was benign because she was prayed for. God gave us a miracle. The second time, they found cancer in that same breast. She had a word from God that they were not going to do radical surgery on her. The only thing she had peace with allowing them to do was take the lump out. And we fought that doctor for five months because he said, the only way I can guarantee your life is that I do a mastectomy. But she had faith that wasn't going to happen. And for five months, we refused to go along with him. Finally, finally, he gave us a paper to sign. That said he would do, he would take the lump out, but we wouldn't hold him accountable if she got cancer and died because that was not his recommendation. But God delivered her, healed her. But in November 2013, one morning she says to me, I've got a lump and I'm concerned. She called her regular doctor and we went to see that doctor and that doctor felt around and said, right now, that day scheduled her for a mammogram sonogram. And we went. That day she had a, an appointment with the surgeon. So we went and had the sonogram and mammogram done. And then we had about an hour before seeing the surgeon to find out what he's found. And we, we spent some time together talking and kind of listening to the Lord. And we agreed that the Lord was saying to us this time, there wasn't going to be a word of healing. She wasn't going to be healed. That we were going to travel the journey. That we would do everything we had peace with that the doctors required to be done. And so we started that journey. I was supposed to come here in February, March of 2014. That afternoon we went to see the breast surgeon. He said, Mrs. Wright, you have cancer. He said, now, it's not large yet but it's enough to be concerned about and we we're going to do surgery and it's small enough that right now it's possible that we won't have to you won't have to do any chemo or radiation but i i got some more tests i want to run so about a week later we went back for more tests 
And then they said, well, it's bigger than we thought. And you're going to have to do chemo after surgery. We've got some more tests to run. And when they did those tests, and we went in to get the result of those tests, they said, it's far larger than we thought it was. We can't, we can't give you any promise of anything. We don't know what's going to happen. In fact, the lumps are so large, we can't even do surgery yet because we don't think we can get clean margins around the lumps enough to assure that we got everything. So you're going to have to do chemo first, four months of chemo first, before we're even able to try surgery. And from the first time she was diagnosed, this is how we prayed. We were never allowed to ask God to spare her life. We were not allowed by God to ask for her to live. We were not allowed by God to ask for her healing. These are the words we prayed. This is the direction we got. God, you are our Father. And we believe that you are in complete control of our lives. This situation has not surprised you. You knew about it before we did. And we trust you. You are in control. And we give ourselves to you. Whatever happens... We trust you because you're our Father. Some days we prayed that once together. Some days we prayed that many times together. Every time the adversary would try to come and bring fear, we'd pray it again. We cast all this care on you, Lord. We trust you. You are our Father. We trust you. We trust you. We went to see the oncologist to start chemo. And she told us right up front, She said, I cannot guarantee you that my medicine is going to affect these tumors at all. We can just hope. Because if my medicine doesn't affect it at all, I don't know what's going to happen when it comes to the surgery. She was a very nice lady. We had a great, we still have a great relationship with her. Four months we went to the chemo. Do you know anything about chemo? She never threw up one time. Most of the time, she didn't even act like she had had chemo. Every time we'd go in for the next treatment, they'd say, have you been feeling this, 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 this? No, 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 no. And they'd say, are you sure? We're sure. No, she didn't have any of that, none of those symptoms. Well, they knew she was getting chemo because they were the ones putting that stuff in her. But she didn't have any of that. Well, about six, seven weeks after the last chemo treatment, she had surgery. 13 hours of surgery. And when they did the pathology on the tissue removed, 
the doctor came into the room shaking his head and said, we can't find any cancer in this tissue we removed. We went to see the doctor, the oncologist. And she said, she said, I don't know how to explain this, but we call that a CR, a complete response. And we thanked her. And in front of her staff and other patients in the waiting room, she said, my medicine didn't do this. God did this. Do I believe you can ask and receive? Yes. Yes, I believe that. But I also know that when you're casting, sometimes the Lord wants to teach you something else. We never asked for him to heal her. He wouldn't let us. And we wanted to obey God. Were there times we wanted to do that? Oh, yeah. Were there times I wanted him to give me a guarantee my wife was going to live? Oh, yeah. But I didn't ask it. And Brother Ellis, this is the thing that was so awesome about all that. We're sitting in the infusion room about two months in. And I'm watching them put this stuff in my wife. This sweet, still, small voice says to me, You've never been tempted to ask me why. I I was so elated over that. Because that is the epitome of trust. When you can walk the path that God has for you to walk and you're not demanding that he explain why. And I said to her, I said, the Lord just spoke to me. Has it crossed your mind to ask him why we're going through this? She looked at me and she said, no. It really hasn't. I said, I know. That's what he just said to me. He just said to me, you've never even thought to ask me why. Because let me tell you what, my friend. God will tell you a lot of things while you're going through stuff. He will never explain to you why till the answer doesn't matter anymore. That's what trusting a father is about. So when he says for us to pray this kingdom prayer, our father, do you understand that in my mind, in my life, everything I've taught you up to this point is all wrapped up in those two words right there. Not the father. My father, our father. I have a father. We have the father. And who is the father? 
I thought of it this morning. It, I didn't use it last night, but it came to me this morning. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. The King James says the Everlasting Father. But most translations say the Father of Eternity. And I made the point last night, eternity and the infinite are not the same. Because the infinite one is the one who's the Father of Eternity. I have a father. You have a father. Why is it that the man Christ Jesus referred to God as father nine times more than all other, nine out of ten times he called God father more than all other things he referred to God as put together? Father. 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 What was he doing when he said that? He was confessing all of this. He was confessing all of this. The son can do nothing of himself. But whatever he sees the father do. Whatever the father teaches him to say, he says. The father, the father, the father, the father. And kingdom, the kingdom is built upon a relationship not just with God. Not just with the Savior. Not with just with the Lord. But with the father. You cannot participate in the kingdom fully without a relationship with the father. The Father, He told the apostles, He said, I'm going away, but I'm not going to leave you fatherless. I'll come to you. I'm with you now in this body as Son, but when my Spirit comes back, I'm coming back as the Spirit of the Father. And I'm going to be in you as the Father. Because Jesus said, I am in the Father, and the Father's in me. And now, today, I can say, I am in the Father, and the Father's in me. So when I pray, it's our Father, which art in heaven. He's my Father. He's your Father if you'll let Him be. He wants to be your Father. He birthed you as His Son. Behold, how good. <laughs> no, 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 let me read it. It's 1 John 3, 1. And I, I don't want to quote it. I want you to see it. 1 John 3, 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. This isn't just some kind of religious terminology. This is everything that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth it doth not yet appear what we shall be when we know that when he shall appear we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is we're in the kingdom of God he's the father we're the sons we're in the kingdom we're exercising the kingdom we're called to participate in the kingdom we're called to be his conduit to exercise the kingdom in the earth this is the privilege of a son this is the call of a son is to be a, to be the conduit for the kingdom in the earth Our Father, which art in heaven, that's not that. You know what that's saying? You are above everything. You're over everything. You fill all space. You are everything. There's nothing bigger than you. There's nothing more important than you. There's nothing hard for you. Everything is you because you are over it all. 
And when you have that faith, then you can pray these things. Hallowed be thy name. Next verse. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Now, here's what you've got to understand. Every verb in this prayer is in the imperative tense, which is the tense of command. He said, after this manner, pray. He's not commanding us to us to pray these things. He didn't command me to pray, hallowed be thy name. He didn't command me to pray, thy kingdom come. He didn't command me to pray, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. He is telling me what to pray. He has called you and I to command the name of Jesus to be sanctified in the earth. He has called us to command that the kingdom of God would come in the manifestation in the earth. He has commanded us to command the will of God that is as it is already. This is the Greek here. The will of God as it's already purposed and concluded in heaven. We are to be the conduits to speak for that will of God to be manifested and to come to pass in the earth. We are conduits for the will of God as it's purposed in heaven to be interjected and sent into the spiritual atmosphere of earth that it might come to pass. Conduit. We're conduits. Conduits. I don't know how it is in other languages, but even atheists will say, God damn something. And even, even atheists will say, we use the name Jesus or Christ or the words Jesus Christ as swear words. Even atheists do that. And by doing that, they condemn themselves. Because how can you ask a God to damn something that you don't believe exists? And how can you call on a name as swear words and blasphemy of someone that you don't even believe is of significance and importance? So they condemn their own selves by doing that. But here's the problem. When they use these words, they are unsanctifying the name. My God. But I'm called, and you're 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 called called to pray for the name of Jesus to be manifested in the earth, for it to be loosed in the earth so that it's manifested, so that the name of Jesus becomes sanctified in the hearts and the minds and the spirits of the people of this world. Whatever you do in word and deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks to God, Father, by it. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none of the name I have given among men whereby I must be saved. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess Jesus Christ the Lord of all. He's been given a name that is above every name. Every name. But that's not the faith of this world. 
in our precious, wonderful, saving name. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. How can they be saved by a name they do not reverence? How can they be saved by a name that is not sanctified in their hearts? So the first step of praying for them to be saved is for God to manifest His name and make it holy. That's what the word hallowed means in the King James English. To cause the name to be sanctified or to become holy in their hearts and lives. Why? Because if they don't reverence that name to some degree before they come to God, they can't be saved by that name. And without a reverence name of Jesus, they're put down in water and all they do is get wet because the power of water baptism is in the name. It's in the name. And we have been privileged to be called to be the conduits for the name of Jesus to be sanctified in the earth. And we need to speak that into the spiritual atmosphere of this world every day. Every day, every day, every day. You don't have to do it just once. You can do it all you want to do. But do it. It needs to be done. And the next step is... Is commanding the kingdom of God to be manifest in the earth. Why? God gave man dominion over the earth. The kingdom of God was established in the garden. Because man had dominion. It wasn't man's authority. It was God's authority given to man to to express dominion. But man gave that up. But God has a, a second Adam. The Lord Jesus Christ. And as a part of the body of Christ, we are part of the second Adam. And the second Adam is, is God restoring His spiritual dominion in the earth. But somebody's got to be a conduit to speak and interject that power and authority of the kingdom into the earth. Jesus said, if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. He said to go into a place and heal the sick. And after their heals, tell them, the kingdom of God has come unto you. So the kingdom of God is the demonstration of the power and authority of the name of Jesus in supernatural manifestation of miracles and signs and wonders so that the world would recognize that God is alive, He's not dead, and that His power is enough to deliver them from their sin and bring them into a place of fellowship with Him. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I, I loose the kingdom of God into the earth and command that it be manifested in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I command that it be manifested in the earth, that the name of Jesus might be revealed and sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, I take dominion and authority over every spirit, every principality, every power, every ruler of darkness, every wicked spirit that is attempting to hinder the work of God, the things of God, that's attempting to bind souls from being saved. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. (sighs) 
I wasn't even asking you to do that. But did you feel that? Did you feel the urgency that the Holy Ghost feels? Did you feel the witness of God? Of the urgency He feels for wanting His people to, to participate? He wants you to participate with Him. But what if I pray, brother, brother, right, and I don't see anything happen? He didn't say pray it if you see something happen. He said pray it because something will happen. It may not happen today. It may not happen tonight. It may not happen tomorrow. But if I will be faithful and pray what the Lord has called me to pray, it will happen. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, 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 yes. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So when I obey God, I'm demonstrating faith. And just because I don't see it today, tonight, tomorrow, doesn't mean God's not working. He is working. I pray in obedience to Him, He will work. If I will pray in obedience to Him, He will work. We're not waiting on God. He's waiting on us. He's waiting on us to obey Him and pray like He's commissioned us to pray. He's waiting on us to pray and let the kingdom of God be manifested through us. In the name of Jesus. 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 And when I pray that the name of Jesus be sanctified. And I pray for the kingdom of God to be manifested. And I command that the will of God, as it's already purposed in heaven, be loosed in the earth and manifest the earth. That is when I began to do binding and loosing. That's when I began to bind what He leads me to bind and loose what He leads me to loose. That's when I began to speak words of authority and exercise the authority of the Lord. Because that's what the door's been opened to do. The three requirements for the kingdom to work is the name to be sanctified, for the kingdom of God to be loosed in the earth, 
and for the will of God to be prayed in the manifestation. And once that's done, and I've surrendered to that, and I am committed to that, then I can pray, binding and loosing, and God will work. In the name of Jesus. 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 Hallelujah. 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 Come on. The church isn't called to reach the lost by itself. We're given the keys to the kingdom. He built his church for his church to manifest the kingdom, to use the kingdom's keys of the kingdom, to bind and loose. Do you know what binding and loosing is? It's the same exact thing as praying for the will of God to be done. Because we pray for the will of God as it's purposed in heaven to be fulfilled in the earth. And whatever's already bound in heaven, we bind on earth. And what's already bound is loosed in heaven, we loosed on earth. That's exactly the same thing. It's the same thing. Hallelujah. 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 The Lord can do what He wants, but I can't ever get through teaching this, this prayer because He always does this and we don't ever get to the rest of it. He always does that. And maybe I'll get to cover the rest of it at some point. But I, I didn't stop you intentionally. That wasn't my purpose. But I'm, I, brought, I'm, I said that to bring this up. You can't just do this in this room. You can't just do this here and now. The Spirit of the Lord has borne witness with everybody in this room. If you will hear it, receive it. That this is what He wants us to be doing. So my initial prayer is to be in His presence. And my, my next prayer is to, to be humble so that he, I can be fruitful. So that I can now allow Him to exercise His kingdom through me in the earth as His conduit on a daily basis throughout the day. This is His will for us. This is what He wants. And if we will participate with Him on His terms, by His will, according to His way, instead of trying to force our religious traditions on Him, then we will see the difference. It will be different. You'll see the difference. Because He's God. Come on. Let's thank Him right now. Let's thank Him. Let's give him thanks. He is worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy. In the name of Jesus. He is worthy. He is worthy.
He is worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy. Now, I did not cover one of the most powerful aspects of this prayer today. Because that is, if I end up doing what I feel like, what I feel the Lord's leading me right now to do tonight, we'll deal with the spiritual side of this, the supernatural side of it tonight. Okay? But we have to learn how to speak in our the, the language of our minds, the things he has commanded us to say, if we want him to use us supernaturally in other languages. Okay? God bless you. Pastor Lee? Let's thank the Lord for a moment right now. Father, we just thank you for your word, Lord. Hallelujah, Jesus, God. Lord, we ask God that you are Continue, God, to give us that atmosphere, God, right now, God, that we are feeling here right now in Jesus' name, God. Hallelujah, Jesus, God. Lord, we give you the praise and the honor. Thank you, God, for speaking to us. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's, shall we just praise the Lord for his wonderful word? Sister, we are any announcement? Lunch is two o'clock over the other end.